Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is an important day in the history of the Psychedelic Salon. In a few minutes, I'm going to play for you the introduction to Leonard Picard's remarkable book, The Rose of Paracelsus, on secrets and sacraments. The reason I say this is an important day for the Salon is that I believe that years from now, if anyone still remembers the Psychedelic Salon, it will be because of this series, which begins today. Now before we get started, there are a couple of announcements about today's podcast that I'll make now rather than at the end of the program. First of all, while this podcast recording is freely available for you to reproduce, give copies away, and if you have your own podcast, Leonard and I would be most grateful if you repodcast it on your own channel. Our objective is for this story to reach as many people as possible. However, I do need to mention that transcripts of this podcast fall under the normal copyright proscription about reproducing the text of a copyrighted book. Leonard has given us permission for the audio of these readings, followed by a commentary, to be freely shared, just not a written copy of the text of his book. So this is all the permission that you need if you want to repodcast this program. Also, should you want to connect with the producers of this series, or to pass a comment along to Leonard, in addition to the comments section in the program notes, I've also set up a single email account to focus all of the comments and inquiries about the Rose of Paracelsus to the following email address, therose at psychedelicsalon.com, therose at psychedelicsalon.com, which should be easy to remember. Now, let me be clear that it may take two years or more before we have finished the reading and commentary on this 650-page book. And you may notice that I'm calling it simply a book and not a novel. Because, uh, well, I'm not entirely sure that it is, in fact, a fictional story. <laughs> You'll have to be the judge of that for yourself. But here is what has been said about this book on Amazon's website, and I quote, the Rose explores a global entheogen system, discovering their practices leading to cognitive enhancement and, arguably, the next human form. From Cambridge to Moscow, Oxford to Zurich, Princeton to Majorar Sharif, and Bangkok. The Rose records the lifestyles with a most rare and elusive organization, one that has evolved special gifts, advanced capacities of thought, memory, and perception. End quote. And that is what we have to look forward to as we listen to these recordings from the Rose of Paracelsus. Now for newcomers to the salon who may not already be familiar with Leonard Picard's life story, I'll give you a few headlines. Of course, the Rose itself may tell more of his story than we know. For example, one former DEA agent went on national television and claimed that Leonard had created over three billion doses of LSD. <laughs> That's a lot of acid, my friends, enough to dose the entire Western Hemisphere, if true. In today's program notes, which you'll find at psychedelicsalon.com, I've linked to a story in the excellent online magazine, The Rooster, and it was written by a friend of the salon, Riley Capps. He begins his essay, titled The Acid King, by saying, and I quote, 
The Rose is a story of an international clan of secret LSD chemists who cook up millions of doses using elaborate clandestine methods. They live a fantastic lifestyle of high luxury and monastic poverty, daringly escaping detection and battling forces arrayed against them. They train ex-hippies to infiltrate the government to spy on the DEA. They perform magic and do telepathy and channel strange forces like sorcerers." End quote. Riley's article contains much more interesting information about Leonard and the Rose, so you would be well served to read it in full. In it, you will learn that Leonard was accused of planning an LSD manufacturing operation in a missile silo in Kansas. You probably remember the news about that bust. Leonard has now spent the past 18 years or more living in a maximum security prison while serving two life sentences without the possibility of parole. He hasn't even seen a tree in all that time while being held in this desert prison. But to me, the most amazing thing about Leonard is his attitude. I'm sure that I never could have survived in captivity as long and as in good mental shape as has Leonard. Although I've never met him in person, when we speak on the telephone, he comes across as an old friend with a great attitude and a genuine concern for others. Another thing that I would like to point out is that there are millions and millions of people around the world who are microdosing on LSD this very day. They are the beneficiaries of not only the skilled work of these chemists, these chemists are also risking their freedom to get you your medicine. You may think that for them it's all about money, but after you listen, or better yet read this book, you'll understand that these women and men answer to a higher call. Now this is a long podcast today, the longest ever in the Psychedelic Salon, and throughout this podcast you're going to hear from many people who will be reading and commenting on the rose. By the time this series is completed, over 100 people will participate in this project and countless thousands of hours will be spent, all by volunteers, to help more people learn about this important work. So I want to be sure that you know something about the two people who have made this project possible. They are Kat and Alexa Lakey, two sisters whose first podcast here in the salon last year is titled, The Family That Trips Together Sticks Together. Now, not long after they produced that podcast, and they'd already begun to prepare more programs for us, well, I kind of sidetracked them <laughs> and solicited their help with this project. You see, a month earlier, Leonard had contacted me to ask if I would do a review of his book here in the salon. I agreed, and his publisher sent me a copy. Well, within my first hour of reading The Rose, it became clear to me that reviewing a work of this magnitude was, <laughs> well, it was most definitely out of my league. I'm a writer, and I've published a novel, but The Rose is so much more than a novel. To my mind, this is a real work of literature, and by that I mean it's written, as a commentator says in this podcast, it is written in beautiful, powerful, multifaceted language, as you will hear in just a moment. So, after beginning to read my copy of The Rose and talking with Leonard, we realized that, with the vast number of well-known people who are his friends, we should ask some of them to do sample readings. Then the project began to grow exponentially, and, <laughs> well, thankfully the Lakey sisters stepped up and volunteered to produce this series. So I want to be very clear about the fact that I'm simply the guy who is publishing these readings on the net. The producers, the ones who deserve the most credit here, are Kat and Alexa Lakey. 
Now, besides tracking down people to do readings and then obtaining commentaries on the readings, they then added music and edited these initial readings into a seamless whole so that we can begin listening to the entire book after first hearing an overview of it. Now, if you are a podcaster or audio content producer or have been involved in recording an audiobook, then you understand how much technical editing work Cat has done to ensure that the readings flow smoothly. And the work of producing this series is still far from done. Cat and Alexa have a lot of work ahead, and Leonard and I can't thank them enough. Now, before I turn this podcast over to Cat and Alexa, I want to leave you with an image of how this book was written. As you will hear, for more than four years, day after day, week after week, month after month, Leonard wrote this book using only paper and a pencil while confined in a concrete cell somewhere in the Arizona desert. He didn't have an internet connection available for reference, and he didn't even have the luxury of working in a library. In fact, Leonard has never even seen Facebook, Wikipedia, Instagram, Reddit, or YouTube. Just think about that. <laughs> it really boggles the mind. The Rose of Paracelsus was written in a prison cell. And while we may not be in a position to free Leonard's body at this time, we most certainly can set his ideas, his mind, free to interact with yours and mine as we contemplate what he has to say. If you've ever been to Ireland, then you most likely have visited the library at Trinity University and looked on the Book of Kells which is one of the most famous books ever written and is considered Ireland's greatest treasure. After seeing it for the first time, I traveled to the Abbey of Kells and sat in one of the cells where the monks slowly and laboriously wrote the Book of Kells. Now, over 1,200 years later, another monk sat in a cell and very slowly and laboriously wrote the Rose of Paracelsus. I dream that one day my great-great-grandchildren will be able to view the original manuscript of this work where it will be on public display and considered one of America's greatest treasures. To me, this is the psychedelic Book of Kells. And now, here are Cat and Alexa Lakey. Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Rose Garden. This podcast will serve as the introduction to an upcoming series that will chart William Leonard Picard's epic novel, The Rose of Paracelsus, on secrets and sacraments. My name is Kat. And I'm Alexa. And we'll be your hosts, guiding you through this labyrinthian masterpiece of psychedelic literature. For those of you who've never heard of William Leonard Picard, here's a little background on him. For the last 18 years, Picard has been serving two life sentences in prison without the possibility of parole. The Harvard graduate, UCLA drug policy researcher, and alleged LSD chemist entered into the public eye back in 2000 after he was arrested in the now infamous Wamego missile silo bust in Kansas. According to the DEA, this was the largest LSD lab seizure in history and resulted in a 95% decrease in the supply of acid in the U.S. in the two years following his arrest. Some of you might be familiar with that story, but it rests in one of the final chapters in The Rose of Paracelsus, which serves as a memoir for a remarkable period in Picard's life. At over 650 pages, the book was written with pencil and paper from inside a prison cell, and took over four years to complete. 
Like psychedelics themselves, the rose blurs the lines between reality and fiction in an alchemical web of intrigue and mystery. The book is written from Picard's perspective as he travels the world, encountering the elusive group of men known as the Six. The Six are clandestine LSD chemists who produce planetary-sized batches of the drug with the utmost of secrecy. Only five of the Six are interviewed by Picard, and they are identified by a color. Crimson, indigo, magenta, vermilion, and cobalt. As the narrator enters into their world, he uncovers an intricate psychedelic organization, which works across the globe and behind the scenes with entheogens to raise human consciousness and possibly to kickstart our evolution as a species. The Rose Garden will go chapter by chapter, with each episode read by a different voice, followed by a discussion on the material. Certain contributors are known for their work in the psychedelic community, like Amanda Fielding of the Beckley Foundation, Ben Sessa of Breaking Convention, and Julian Vane of the Psychedelic Press. Others are equally accomplished but come from completely different fields, and we'll tell you more about them throughout the episode. This series, much like The Rose, will be long, heavy, and at times, very dark. But if you give it a chance, you won't be disappointed. We highly recommend picking up a copy of the book to read along with us. Take your time, pause when you need to, and you might start to feel the unique contact high that only this book can deliver. Other than LSD, it's quite possibly the most psychedelic thing you'll ever find on paper. From the halls of Harvard to a den of warlords in Afghanistan, this podcast will explore the many secrets and sacraments of a psychedelic underground few have ever encountered. All of this comes from the perspective of a man who hasn't seen a tree in 18 years and may never see one again. William Leonard Picard is a complex and perhaps a polarizing figure, but this series will be a platform for those who have known and loved him to speak on his behalf, and perhaps give a voice to all others like him who cannot speak out for themselves. So, without further ado, here's Leonard. Dear friends and listeners, this is Leonard Picard welcoming you to the Rose Garden. In the garden, we'll explore together the mysteries and pleasures in the Rose of Paracelsus on secrets and sacraments, often referred to simply as the Rose. In what may be a true novelty in any podcast, this first issue of the Rose Garden is a prelude to a more operatic experience. The first full reading in its entirety of a work of psychedelic literature. The Rose, each chapter at a time, will be read by a single reader and podcast over two years. Thus, it is our gift for you, our offering. This is very much an international effort. We're privileged to hear today the voices of both men and women, those with ages ranging from 20 to 92, and with readers from Austria, France, Germany, strong contingent from the United Kingdom and the United States. The Rose Garden 
is hosted through the kindness of Lorenzo Haggerty of the Psychedelic Salon and produced by sisters Kat and Alexa Lakey. What a discussion by UK author Julian Vane and Nikki Weird, editor of Psychedelic Press UK. On a personal note, Kat Lakey has just returned from working in remote areas among indigenous tribes in Amazonia, while Julian and Nikki often speak to the Rose, to their European audiences. We are grateful in the Rose Garden to hear the voices and readings of quite a list of contributors, among them Brother David Steindl Rost, the well-loved Benedictine monk and spiritual leader, who reads from Gut H. Priory in Salzburg, Austria, where he is secluded. Good H means good heart. Brother David was only 19 during the Anschluss, the Nazi occupation of Vienna, and later was permitted by the Vatican to study Buddhism in America. Ben Sessa, MD, reads as well. Ben is the adolescent psychiatrist in the UK, researcher with the Imperial College London Psychedelic Research Group, an eminent host of the breaking conferences at the University of Greenwich. We're very fortunate to have as a reader the young researcher and writer, Nashe Divano. Nashe is a prolific researcher and popular speaker at conferences in the U.S. and abroad, and is easily the foremost leading analyst in psychedelic literature. Widely admired. I cannot speak more highly of Nashe. Currently, she's a postdoctoral scholar at the Department of Bioethics at Case Western School of Medicine. Nashe has a firm understanding of the rose, and we'll be hearing more from Nashe in the discussions. Uh, Julie Holland, MD, the eminent New York City psychiatrist and speaker and author, is participating in the longer readings as well as Whole Foods founder Greg Sams in London. In the longer series, we may expect readings from Cosmo Fielding Mellon, producer and director of the Sunshine Makers, and Amanda Fielding, director of the Beckley Foundation at Oxford. Following our passages by writer Ryan Place of the Book Club of Detroit and the Detroit Book Fest, Nevada radio host Bruce Van Dyke, and from Germany, the Greek classicist Ralph Juder. Students internationally have adopted the rose in their explorations, so that the Rose Garden series will include passages by young theologians and philosophers, majors at the University of Durham in, in England, undergrad Joe Chandler and S.G. Ryan, graduate student Mark Shoneman, all founders of the Durham Psychedelic Society.
listeners to the Rose Garden may wish to read along with us, but listen carefully, for the words can be challenging and may sometimes seem like a prose poem, but they were written under the most arduous conditions and written with great affection and written for you. This is Leonard. Here we have Julian Vane reading an excerpt from the first chapter in The Rose. Julian and his partner, Nikki Weird, will have a strong presence throughout this series of podcasts, discussing the material and at times interviewing some of the contributors. Julian is an occultist and the author of several books, essays, and journals in both the academic and esoteric press. This excerpt is from the narrator's first encounter with one of the six, a man known only as Crimson. On a foggy night on a beach in Point Reyes, California, Leonard speaks with Crimson. But to be in the presence of one of the six is like a psychedelic experience in and of itself. This excerpt starts on page 18. And now, Julian Vane. He offered a sip of mango juice from an antique silver flagon, as if it were holy water. Within minutes, the sea floor itself, perhaps the entire continent, seemed to move ever so slightly, like some microscopic, profound, and irrevocable tectonic shift. The fire's heat against the cold sea air became the allegory for the worlds balanced by practitioners of these clandestine arts. I could only listen to his fantastic web of recollections and foretelling as he spoke softly, confiding mythic tales of remote laboratory sites. Sacred glass furnaces disgorge illuminated fragments of mind in blinding rivers. Alone and on their knees, at these fountains of consciousness, singular beings pray for an end to suffering. Eternal evenings become crystal daybreaks pierced by the morning star. At first, thinking him messianic, pontificating, perhaps a proponent of some arcane religious heresy or ghastly folly, I felt mixed elation and alarm. There was a moral unease at his descriptions of what only could be mere simulacra, but the changes were beginning. With his words, the beach became luminous as noon, as though the sky had knocked open. There was the crackle of stars, then blood-red shells of Magellanic clouds. The ocean was billowing, cold and black, percussive between the screaming silences. The dunes were a moonscape of rubble. There is fission, then fusion of thought and feeling, as forgiveness for all blasts heavenward. Dissolute chaos renders to absolute certainty wrenching ignominy and confusion transmute to clarity and peace. The tranquil veils of Elysium are welcoming us. He fell silent. 
the sound of the sea began to evolve out of night, the hum of existences whispering secrets like some fantastic drug, but not so cruelly, for mind that evening was so vast no mere substance dare mimic its majesty. It was the power of grace that compels us. The seas cradled and released, as if in play, then flowed in bright streams, reflecting the plumed branches of heaven above. Unrolling firmaments were full of incoherent raptures. I sat speechless in a hypnagogic state, while he seemed to transform in the shifting firelight and white noise and the reflections of ten thousand fingers of fractal silver waves into a spectrum of beings. He reaggregated as the alchemist Paracelsus, as the Gnostic wizard Hermes Trismegistus, as an ecclesiastical conspirator in sixteenth-century Basel, as an itinerant tinker on a Scottish beach. He displayed the Dionysic intoxication recalled by Euripides in the Bacchae, yet the solemnity of a Delphic priest as clouds of myrrh trailed from his oracular pronouncements. He became robot flesh from synthetic DNA and future avatars penetrating the present for just this one encounter. Then a Miocene hominid speaking unknown tongues before the advent of fire. He became the angel that St. John saw in the sun, then all the healers and medicines of the world, the heretical anatomy of Galen and Vesalius, the antisepsis of Lister, the anesthesia of Crawford Long. Finally, the dreamlike light show slowed, the changes merging into a single, still, perfectly clear prospect. There appeared at last only Crimson himself, simply poking the embers around and placing driftwood, as if nothing at all had occurred except two friends warming themselves beneath the universal canopy. After the psychic conflagrations, I took quite some moments to recover. Something more you wish to know? He said with gravitas. So, Julian, we've just listened to you reading an uh, extract from The Rose of Paracelsus, and in it, the one of the fig figures that turns up in the, the list that Leonard refers to is Paracelsus. Do you think that this is particularly important in this particular section? I think that the, the, the idea of... I mean, Paracelsus, for me, I suppose the, the, the overriding brilliant insight that I'm aware of from his work is this thing about that it's the dose that makes the poison. Mm. And I guess that's the same with, you know, the, the, the whole point is that's a universal kind of truth that he's pointing at. And this idea of sacraments, of course, runs all the way through the book and there's a kind of a lot of oscillation between these ideas you know but the, a lot of the time that Leonard writes about the LSD experience including to some extent in this first section although it's quite kind of upbeat there's a lot of a sense that this is beautiful and terrible you know the LSD experience is both something that is you know kind of cosmic and and and, and, and ecstatic and rewarding and miraculous and and, and you know, outstanding 
but it also has it tips over into the sublime and the awesome and the awful and the terrifying and the uh you know those kind of grand visions of destruction and those megalomanic kind of um outpourings of, of human experience that those things are in there too yeah so i think that the whole thing about having paracelsus in there because paracelsus is you know it's it's the, the rose of paracelsus it's based on this story um by borges about paracelsus the the, the alchemist historical character uh, and i think that yeah a lot of it is this idea that i guess also in terms of Leonard's own kind of history you know the, the this substance is both a means of liberation and a road to incarceration. Mm. Yes, yes. So you have this really double-edged sort of sword going on. Yeah, and, and, and it resolves itself into a kind of a... just the simplicity of the human experience. Mm. And that's a really interesting thing. So by the end of this like massive thing that's happened, uh, this is very early on in the book, it's only like in the first, I don't know, 60-odd pages or something, that he meets Crimson, meets this outlaw chemist who has this ability to kind of induce a psychedelic experience just by being in his presence. So he goes through this big experience where he's kind of, you know, having that nature mystery kind of moment and then perceiving this person as all these different characters and that resolves down into the simplicity of just two guys sat there by the beach with a fire between them. Mm. And, and a lot of the book does that as well. There's a lot of points at which the oscillation between these two great extremes kind of often resolves itself into like the simplicity of an act or, or, or a character or a landscape or something. It becomes very simple, it kind of distills into that. Mm. Something that I um, got from that particular extract is the way that it was very much about the sort of the elemental setting and the liminal place that they were in so they're on the beach and there's the sky above and the sea below and then there's a brief mention of the dunes as well but it's mostly to do with that and then there's also the fire that they're actually sitting around so the the, the setting within which these this conversation happens and the, the way that crimson is pontificating about all sorts of things and describing and evoking the world over a huge amount of sort of space and time which comes slightly before this bit that we're actually hearing here there's a huge sort of depth to that but it's in within this very um yeah very liminal simple elemental landscape and setting um, and i quite like that is it's, it's very sort of um it, it has that jewel of the meaning of the the different words but set within a clear frame that, that's an interesting way of thinking about it i never really thought about it like that before but now you're articulating that i think in terms of the whole book there is a sense, perhaps, in which that is like it's like the moment you would have in a ceremony, isn't it, where you would acknowledge the different directions and you would acknowledge mm. the above and the below and the, the the you know the fire, which is the last thing that's spoken of in that little section. So yeah, it is like a kind of big an opening for that. And and what's interesting is, is it later on in some of the other psychedelic experiences that are described there's they they kind of go off into these other sort of different directions and they expand in these different ways and some of them are ones that um are very uh, there's one in particular i'm thinking of that's very kind of geographical it's called there's a there's a, a piece that we'll hear later on in this sequence of, of uh, readings which is as though kind of from space looking down onto the earth and this one is kind of sets up some of those axes that are explored within the later parts of the psychedelic revelation. So this one, yeah, it goes into the uh, elements and it goes into this. Is love that lovely bit where he talks about being like future avatars and also being this Miocene hominid. 
So it is like a kind of a magical opening. I think that's a very good way of thinking. It's the ceremonial opening for, the, for, for a lot of what's going to happen in the book. Next up is a reading from the Catholic Benedictine monk, Brother David Steindl Ross. Brother David was born in 1926 in Vienna, Austria, and spent his early years living under Nazi occupation. Now in his 90s, he's known for his active participation as an interfaith scholar and his work on the intersection of science and spirituality. Together with Thomas Merton, he was an early pioneer on the dialogue between Christian and Buddhist monastics. He's also given a TED Talk on the subject of gratitude, which has been viewed over six million times. This excerpt, beginning on page 40, is set in the Beginner's Mind Temple of San Francisco. The atmosphere of the Buddhist monastery is starkly contrasted by the city that surrounds it. In this segment, the author reflects on both his time at the temple and on the years he was imprisoned following an earlier arrest in the 1980s. There's the scent of lilacs. I am facing a wall seated on a cushion in a monk's former sitting robe, legs crossed and back straight. Across the darkened hall, an incense offering burns. I notice my breath as it flows in and out and focus upon it. Distractions appear in the form of thoughts and feelings, sounds and light, and physical sensations from the disciplined posture. These go away for a while, then reappear. I think of plants and people, feel anxiety and desire, hear the faint muffled traffic, and see upon the wall a shaft of sunlight. Within this eternal circle of perceptions, I have fleeting moments of pure consciousness. The Dalai Lama has described this essence of mind as clear and all-knowing. We are practicing at Hoshinji Beginner's Mind Temple in San Francisco, the oldest and largest training monastery in America in Soto Zen tradition. We practice arts from the lineage of Japanese Zen Master Dogen from 1250 AD. It is a place of ancient courtesies and unworldly kindnesses, each morning opening into the rose window of the East. As heirs of the final teachings of Hoshinji founder, Shunryo Suzuki Roshi, we are the residents for months, years, or a lifetime. We learn about simple but difficult mental practices, about graceful conduct, aesthetics, and perfections of manner, and, 
within all of those the iron rail of discipline. After Sazen or meditation, we engage in calligraphy, hibana or flower arranging, chano yu or tea ceremony, gardening, and service of the dying. As a path to enlightenment or big mind, some Soto monasteries also may practice the martial arts of Aikido, the non-injurious rendering of physical aggressions by their momentum to the floor, the soft, elegant litanies of Hoshinji are merciless as diamonds. Indistinguishable from one another, 50 cent priests, monks, nuns and students sit side by side facing the wall in the Zendo or meditation hall, a rectangular room in the 16th century style with a hand-polished wooden floor and elevated areas for sitting meditation. Sometimes our restless normal consciousness, affectionately labeled monkey mind, ceases playing, subsides, and becomes quiescent. We occasionally gain glimpses of no mind, the space between thoughts. It is completely silent and just before dawn. Outside, through the Zendo walls of Rebar and Brick, we hear two young lesbian lovers frantically clutch and rip each other's clothing, pressing against doorways, sobbing, their footsteps shuffling back and forth in attraction and repulsion. They're coming down hot, in jangles crashing from their long sleepless night. They yearn at loss and gain, the fear and surrender, the tantalizing promise of new couplings, the tender fruitless urgencies cry to unify the spirit through flesh. Their voices are without bodies. Don't go. I hate you. I can't be with you anymore. Please don't go. I love you. I gave you all my coke. Convulsive tears. They run up and down the alley behind Hoshinji, past the monks' sittings in silence. Passion and calm are separated by an aged, impassable wall, embossed with wet lichen and lapped by the city's mists. We hear the cycle of unsatiated cravings, the pleading and chasing and embraces and tearing away and returning, the long, low moaning. For them, it is an ugly and poignant hour 
when samsara, the illusion of the world, becomes delirious imaginings, unchecked passion and the cruel severing of their hearts. Their anguish fades in the barely perceptible sounds of distant motors, opening doors, salsa music, the ignition of engines, children's voices ready for school, drunks shouting execrations. Two junkies from nearby projects prowl trash cans and mutter like aimless lunatics already jouncing for the next fix. The background becomes subdued as we attend to the breath. It is quiet once again. There remain only the whistles of swifts as if from abbey walls and the smell of rain-shining streets. No one moves, not a word is uttered. We sit in silence, awaiting the next manifestation of thought and feeling, sound and light, bodily sensations, before it is lost on the out-breath. A haiku by Zen poet Basho arises. Below the autumn tempest rages, while above the sky is motionless. A bell is struck softly. The sitting period is ended. We turn to our cushions, gather our flowing robes, and stand simultaneously with eyes lowered, hands folded, one upon the other. As the bell rings again, we turn left together. From the sendo, a single file, we slowly walk away. I have entered this world by begging admission the same day as released from prison. Captive for a misunderstanding about laboratory equipment, one had been consigned to a hellhole of lethargic suffering. By this different confinement of monastic practice, I seek healing and purification, a cloistering from endless brutality. For a thousand years, supplicants meditated by temple gates for weeks until their earnestness was recognized by passing monks. My years of isolated meditation in the midst of knives and blood may be apparent. Possessing only the second-hand clothes I wear, remnants from a cardboard box that day, I ask for refuge and am given shelter. The howling violence 
the ferocity of a brushless gone now. My body is lean and tight from relentless exercise beneath rows of razor wires in nameless, lonely yards. Monasteries, some say, are places for desperate people. So just having heard that piece read from chapter two by Brother David, just wondering on your reflections on that, Nikki. So firstly, I really liked Brother David's voice. Absolutely wonderful. And the thing that came to my head while I was listening to that is the way that the physical macrocosm of the the monks meditating on one side of the wall and then life going on with all its sort of rich tapestry on the other side from people shouting and drunks swearing and swallows soaring overhead and whistling and children playing and all the other different things that are happening. That's like the divide in the meditator's mind between the monkey mind and the still point which is listening to the chatter and the all the different things that arise and fall, which I think are made explicit in the bit towards the end there where um, the writing describes it in in quite sort of distinct terms, just like that. It's one of the things I find really interesting about The Rose of Paracelsus as a book is that the more I hear it read or the more that I go back and reread it, um, I guess in common with with, all great literature, um, that there's like other layers in it or other things in it that I hadn't seen. So one of the things I noticed about this section, having heard that reading from Brother David, was that a lot of the language is actually quite simple. In that kind of cool Buddhist way, the way that, you know, at least the translations that we have of these words are things like sort of no mind and big mind. Yeah, so it's a simple mm-hmm. kind of Anglo-Saxony kind of words, yes. amusingly. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's really straightforward. Um and again, that, like you're saying, that division between those two different mental states, it's really straightforward. There's just like, you know, there's, there's these, it, on the one hand, it's the kind of the 10,000 things, you know, this proliferation of, 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 um, of stuff. But it's just articulated really simply. There are some lesbian lovers and they're outside the compound of where the monks are meditating and they're shouting and they're shouting as this every day. So it's very simple. It's quite, it, there's quite a contrast in my head between that and some of the more, um, I mean, Baroque and Purple and Mandarin and all those words could be used with it, but there are sections in the book that are much more um, lush in their vocabulary. And this has got that pared-down simplicity of the monk's cell about it, which I hadn't noticed until hearing it just now. Yes, it does have that sort of Zen feel to it, certainly. And then the, the sort of second bit of the extract that we just listened to where he's comparing the, the, um, the prison cell to the monk's cell... I think that that when you're reading it in the book, this comes through even more the way that the one one term of imprisonment leads to another term of voluntary seclusion, and the similarities and dis- differences between those two different parts of Leonard's um, or the the author's life because it's a sort of semi-fictional autobiography. So, um, for me, that was a, that was a particularly interesting way of looking at the the situation, particularly as he is now in prison once again at the moment and he would describe to us how that is again like being back in the, the monastery um, so I find, find that kind of 
moving, but also it's an interesting way of, of reflecting upon one's incarceration, which has been forcibly placed upon one, is to have this kind of accepting, this is how it is, and therefore I will do the meditation and the other practices to get through this time. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of difficult in some respects because we have to be quite thoughtful about, you know, Leonard is a person in a situation and just have to be kind of really mindful about um, what's said and what's articulated because it has real-world effects on him. I know that uh, certainly in um, correspondence that we've had, he's talked about how um, being in the prison is like being kind of incarcerated in a sort of exquisite... Uh, swiss timepiece because everything happens and i can just imagine that you know i mean i just imagine everything being in this kind of steeply sequenced kind of order and so when i read this section in the rose of paracelsus i was really um it was yeah another bit of the book for for me was really moving because i know that that's where he is now where he's been for you know getting on for 20 years Mm. you know um and uh Obviously, the place where, you know, the the zendo, um, uh, which is itself, a, 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 of course, you know, it's interesting that that, that that's the term, um, which gets now used as, you know, it's, it's, I think maps of uh, thinking about that term as a kind of, you know, the psychedelic sort of haven supporting environment is thought of as the zendo. So there's Leonard, Leonard Picard in his zendo back in the day. And this is a space of great, uh, he talks about, in something like innumerable small kindnesses and courtesy and all those sorts of things and again without going into too much detail my understanding is that the prison he's in houses some uh, very troubled individuals so I suspect it's very different from being uh, cloistered in a uh, a monkish environment of many kindnesses and many courtesies yes yes you'd still get the sort of the codified body languages and all sorts of things like that that would be similar but with a a rather different flavour I suspect Ralph Juder is a German national who currently lives in both England and Germany he is a Homeric scholar who taught himself to read Homer in its original Greek through the Rose of Paracelsus Ralph has come to know Leonard in this first passage beginning on page 327 the chemist Indigo intervenes in the life of a young junkie in Switzerland. They find the girl while visiting a bombed-out squat near Needle Park in Zurich. There, within the constant drug use, they look more deeply at what is happening, and at the archetypes of addiction. Indigo suggested that we part the psychic veil and look at the dark matter rather than the atoms. At this, He passed his hand over the scene, as if trailing a transparent curtain or rippling the surface of clear water, beyond which nothing and everything was changed. The young people were clutched in the folds of some high serpent. The girls were panting and breathless within the heavy reptile curl. The boys were wild and sweating, struggling, picked at by old carrion birds. The walls moved with images of ghastly Aztec's carvings. I felt like Ophir's looking back into hell. Convent devils raged around us like clanging torments in this common barren world. The snake of Esculapius, god of medicine, coiled around the cross in a horrific caduceus. 
These debauched teenage acolytes of opiates and stimulants had dark-ringed eyes and fevered grimaces. Some were whining peevishly for needles, others in corners bent like squaws or kneeled before those unencumbered in a room strewn with used prophylactics. They find the overdoses in crevices on the Bernese Oberland, Indigo whispered, thrown over and disguised as hiking mishaps. One French girl, black-haired and pale-skinned in a leather jacket, had her blue jeans down her long legs to her ankles, offering herself for a dose. She would turn heads on the Bahnhofstrasse with her white grey eyes and white pallor. Removing her pointed silk brasserie of theoretical black, she looked as if she were temporarily absent from a family villa near Niedwalden and now a roaming spectre at the peak of the Jungfrau. Her right arm was stained and velvet like blood drying. They come from Zug, Lucerne, Geneva, the rich into Kloten Airport and down the Zürichberg, Indigo said. She was pathetic in the throes of craving, baffled, her new worldliness concealing an eye not yet embittered. Tearful and stammering, she still had starts of revulsion. In her scanty attire, with a listless and grim resolve, she invited the junkies, the ghostly horsemen, to ride her. We saw in the girl the next pestilences of this world, the drugged future Saturnalias, like the women and men copulating on graves in Milan during the plagues, as everyone grasped at dwindling life with the sibilance of machines. Evil was at the helm. And these are the oldest drugs, Indigo said. Imagine the abuse of the next generation of eretogenics. The deepest images were the most frightening. As we witnessed the mythic core, I almost bolted in horror. We saw the Christ child in a manger, infused with holy light, while surrounding him were giant spiders feeding at his glory. Above him stood the compassionate Mary in her robe of stars, until a beatific countenance was drawn back to reveal horrible fangs. We saw who addiction truly was. I no longer could bear to look upon it. Indigo passed his hand across the panorama, trailing the images like strobes, and said from the Vulgate the last words of Christ on the cross. Consumatum est. It is finished. The glissade of dimensions coalesced. There now were simply young people partying with spoons and pills and needles, a few aged junkies sharing their bags of powders. Some were dressing to flee into the cold Zürich air, spreading their secret infection. As one sluggish fetus looked on with his dimmed swivel eyes, Indigo suddenly seized the French girl, pulling her forcibly behind a wall, as others said. Trembling, she exposed her young, sharp, up-tilted breasts. She asked whether we each wanted her alone, or both together. Amour des quatre pattes, à tous les quatre vents, l'avant all fours, at every opening. Indigo asked her if she would trade the drug for a loving husband and children who thought the sun rose in her eyes. 
she wavered at the unexpected truth. He told the lost girl to cover herself, then offered her a pale mother-of-pearl rosary. She said it glowed like a string of moonlight and silver. Pressing it into her hand, he evoked memory from her Catholic schoolgirl youth. Extirpandum turcam, throw out the devil. He reminded her how to count the rosary, then they slowly repeated at least ten times the full Ave Maria. I heard them together, his voice first, her quavering refrain following, indigo like a father guiding his children home. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu. She dressed, stumbling after us into the daylight, then joined us in a cap on the long ride to Cloton Airport. It was like Perseus' rescue of Andromeda. Indigo, in the manner of a seminarian with potent and sensuous beliefs, hovered protectively, bringing her back to a visionary, polite world. We helped her board her fly to Geneva. Indigo retrieved her name and number. He said two women would visit her one day soon. The names would be those of the muses. So we just heard that uh, excerpt read by Ralph. Nikki, I'm wondering what thoughts that immediately provokes for you. Uh, so one of them was I was very impressed with Ralph being able to do so many different languages. It's very good. The actual content of the piece... Oh, it's quite messy, isn't it? So it's talking about the way that drugs enhance people's lusts and those kind of drives, the way that opiates and stimulants in particular. And it made me think that how drugs, which are just focused on the sort of the, the pleasures of the flesh, on lust, and they can only end, end up leading to excessive and like repeated patterns of that particular, trying to seek new sensations in the flesh. Uh, they don't really lead to anything else at all. They, they So they just collapse in on themselves in this like spiraling pressure to have more and more to chase that high that you have of the first time that you encounter something but in order to get that with this kind of concoction and the of the different things the opiate stimulants and sexual intercourse as well the only way that that you can chase that high is to get more and more extreme to get more and more depraved about things which ultimately is only going to lead to self-destruction and all sorts of horribleness from that I think you know, it's a really powerful section. It's really interesting the way that Indigo kind of uh, passes his hand over the scene and then the kind of the mythic reality behind the, the, the practicality of what's going on happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, for me, someone who's interested in, in, in the esoteric and the, the occult is a really powerful thing because what the Rose does, I think, really quite well is it demonstrates how you know mythic magical reality and, quote, real reality... Are, are the same thing. It's just a question of your orientation and your ability to perceive things. So with Indigo's movement of his hand, he reveals this kind of Hieronymus Bosch kind of tableau of all these people in this kind of uh, kind of chemsex party kind of environment. And he also mentions the future possibilities for this with the erotogenics, so a mm-hmm. class of drugs like... There's a, there's a whole sort of slew of them just about to emerge into culture, which Leonard has written about both in terms of trying to advise government and also through, through this book. So I think you're right. I mean... <laughs> This is not about saying, you know, being stimulated or, or, or the use of opiates or the use of, uh, you know, sexuality or any of these things is bad or wrong. But what it is about is it's about like Indigo in this, uh, Leonard in this kind of work saying, as you've just said, that these 
only lead to a kind of a, a, a sort of a ramping up of these kind of you know human appetites, and they're very they're the quality, the pernicious quality of them, which is exemplified by this poor lost French girl who's who's mm. interestingly again in terms of this kind of notion of a, a broad spirituality she's actually redeemed by her Catholic upbringing which is really interesting you know again from you know, many people's perspective that kind of idea of uh, religion of penitence and of confession and all those sorts of things might be antithetical to many people's beliefs now it does appear quite a lot in the rose actually this idea of a sort of a, quite a kind of Christic mystical kind of aspect to that this mm. uh, this idea of redemption and penitence and and sacrament of course as well yeah um, and I, like, I like the way that indigo not only gave her a rosary and gave her the spiritual help that she needed on but on that that kind of level but also made sure that she had the airplane tickets made sure that there were people that were going to visit her when she had got back home and did all that sort of follow-up practical kind of stuff so the the spiritual part of it was the the flag like the, the this is the way to the route back to yourself back to who you were before you fell into this state of not knowing what was going on and that that's that for me is the important aspect of this it's not just the symbol of it it's following through on what that symbol means yeah. and being yeah. christ and like you're saying the christic element of of saving people who actually properly assist them and you're not just telling them to go to church or whatever but actually really physically giving help and uh, he repeats the rosary, the, the Ave Maria, ten times with her. He's, he's really investing himself and his attention in this person by doing that and demonstrating to her how much he cares and how much he knows about her. And, of course, on one level, of course, indigo is the psychedelic experience, both in terms of the way he reveals this state and also the way that, as you say, both at a very practical material level and also a deeply symbolic archetypal level, uh, intervenes in this this space and 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 helps to liberate this individual person from this kind of realm of you know hungry ghosts mm. and it's again interesting to note that psychedelics have uh, a great potential and power it would seem to liberate us people from situations where we find ourselves addicted to these kind of bio survival cravings or cravings which we uh, retreat into in order to protect ourselves because of various violence or trauma that's been visited on us. So the bottom line is that you can use acid to heal people of their addiction to opium or to alcohol or to amphetamines. And that, that definitely is the case. And this chapter kind of exemplifies that. So indigo is embodying the spirit, the psychedelic spirit, this ability to liberate this uh, uh, young French girl from, from this, this um, place of craving and self-destruction. Mm. And uh, the passage doesn't let the actual church get off completely scot-free at all here because there's that whole pictures of the, the, the Christ figure and the Madonna in the actual church like revealing themselves to be built upon foundations which are far more um, destructive with the, the church. The religious aspect of it is not itself the hero of the story. It's the people that are able to understand the, the way that the compassion of the message that appears in some parts of that religion can be used really effectively. In the next excerpt, starting on page 335, Indigo recounts a laboratory accident, which covered him in LSD. This resulted in what was perhaps the largest human exposure to the drug in history. As twilight approached, there was some urgency to climb even higher. 
We packed our things and hiked through a wall of three-meter gorse until it opened upon boulders and steep ravines. An imperceptible watershed led up to chasms and labyrinth of defiles. Near the peak, the clouds began moving in alarming haste across a running moon. The deep blue rotunda of the day shattered with a fierce freak storm. The sky began tearing, ripping white into blackness. A vast disorder of flying shapes began whirling like some tide of dread. We huddled on this porch of the unknown as the moon, far above the vapory swiftness, opens its mystic door. It was not unlike the convulsive birth of the Mistral, the iron north wind descending into France. We hid in a grotto, waiting out the storm. There was no rain, only the demented dancing of furies on ridge tops. In the loneliness of these highest ranges, where he had passed so many winters, Indigo seemed truly at home. I knew not how much longer we would be together and encouraged his disclosures by pretending I had just thought of a question. What human had the largest exposure to LSD? Vermilion in Berlin had revealed Indigo's long night of the soul, but my polite little deception was futile. Vermilion is fond of that tale. We have no secrets from each other in operational necessity. I reddened and remained silent. He continued with a fantastical drama. The event occurred before we adopted fully protective moon suits with face shields and air pumps. I had risen from praying, then stood by a custom glass reactor that contained 10 million just activated doses. The elixir swirled under argon beneath deep red illumination. The music was von Bingen, Gregorian, some Amazonian chants. The shrill wind of the mistral rose and fell. He looked out at the trailing clouds as if he were recollecting some unspeakable magic. Standing several rungs up a ladder and engaging a complex range of fine glassware, I began a purification method, decanting the 10 million doses from a 12-litre flask into a large pear-shaped separatory funnel. It was attached to a stainless steel rack high upon a 10-foot wall of delicate specialised glass, a pilot plant, one might say. What happened? My gloved hand, wet with solvent, slipped. And then? The flask shattered. Ten million doses of the most potent psychoactive substance known, dissolved in a solvent that quickly penetrates skin, drenched me from head to foot. Oh my! I thought I was dead. No human could survive such an exposure to any drug. I fell from the ladder onto my back in a large pool of solvent and LSD. Screaming in fear, I staggered to the shower, shaking so I hardly could strip, awaiting the inevitable seizures, unconsciousness and death. And then? I was crying, shouting prayers to be protected, to live, to be spared. Then I was on my knees, naked and wailing before the blinding whiteness. I prayed in the timeless void, for it was the moment of birth and death. He stopped as the mistral in its agonies disturbed the interface between this world and the next. The grotto was dark, but for the cataclysmic shifting light. Please continue if you can. The batch was irretrievable, of course, although no one cared. I couldn't call an ambulance, for the scene appeared like some other planet's holy wilderness of technology. 
I awaited the next life grieving for my loved one. For a moment, demons shrieked and stellar hosts sang of forever peace. Gone. I somehow stood praying, please, God. I hung on the shower hatch with the water over my face, carried by the river of life to the eternal mother ocean, the hiss of waves on beaches of worlds without end. And, and trembling, I carefully bathed, ritually cleansing, then managed to dress in an old blue work shirt and jeans. I somehow moved about the rooms which were billowing wildly in the currents of mind and refreshed the votives, lit incense and thanked God for my life that was passing. Yes, I crawled to a veranda on this summer night. I was in northern Italy. The villa had an oceanic view as we prefer for sights. Against the wall, resigned to fate, I sat with legs crossed, hands in prayer, gazing now and then at the spectacle before me. What did you see or experience? I saw the constant creation of the most perfect world imaginable by the mind of God, the luminous air of delicious gases like the perfume of lovers and goddesses, the rich earth made of gems, the fecund ground of being. I saw the union of all dualities, the crystallized souls of heaven, the galaxies of consciousness, and all life as mythic and sublime. How long did this last? Oh, it never went away. Even now I can see it, if I wish. You mean the effects were permanent? No, I mean the greatest gift is the natural mind, that which cannot be created or destroyed by any drug that which we have always. How can you have seen what you described, if not for the overdose? I saw the world as it truly is. God, or the ultimate consciousness, would not be so cruel as to make such glory dependent on a substance. Put another way, nothing happened that night. Nothing happened? I was exposed to ten million doses in seconds the only human to witness or survive such an exposure. Beyond the initial changes, there was no effect whatsoever. After the first few moments on the veranda and the whirlwind of the unknown, the night became crystal clear. I could hear night birds stirring and feel little freshets of cool wind. All was perfect, beautiful. The moon went bronze to white as it rose, its rays dispersing through the thick forests. No patterning, the world was vast and still. The exposure was so extreme that it had no effect. By contrast, a milligram, thousand micrograms, ten or twenty doses would have been overwhelming. I would have writhed in rebirth for many hours. I was saved that night by grace alone. Then the ultimate vision was our own mundane, magical world? Yes, that's it. Perhaps the event was a reminder that we all already have that which we seek. Ultimate intelligence, ultimate beauty, universal peace, the final comprehension, ultimate love. What did you do? With humility and gratitude, I reflected on this great teaching of enlightenment as the moment one recalls the divinity of normal mind, knowing it for the first time.
and I looked at the forest in the moonlight, not moving through the night as the earth turned to day. After a final prayer, I rested for a few hours. Over the next weeks, I decontaminated the site with care, discarding every trace of the incident. There were esoteric acts of lustration, ceremonial purifications, with quite some use of smudge sticks and candles, incense, chants and prayers. I ran kilometers each night, restoring physical energy, then with our formal traditions prepared the next batch. At this, he became quiet. We sat in meditation until the wind receded, the tranquil evening drifting upon us like a black silk gown at the commencement of understanding. So in the second of the excerpts read by Ralph, I really enjoyed how the setting of the wild storm whilst they're climbing through the mountains really suited the tale, the idea that they're hiding in this grotto away from all of the, the light and the sound and the fury of the storm. And within this safe cave, this safe eye of the storm, he asks about something which must have been, at the time it happened, a huge maelstrom event for Indigo. I love the description of the way that the laboratory is set up with the red lights, which are there for technical reasons, but also the Hildegard von Bingen chants playing throughout the votive candles and the incenses and the prayers that have been offered. The way that all this delicate glassware is all carefully prepared, which is, with hindsight, asking for trouble. I particularly love the phrase that he describes it as if it was another planet's wilderness of alien technology. It's such a powerful moment. Anyone who's ever taken LSD can at least imagine themselves into this kind of experience of having taken uh, an overdose, essentially, uh, a huge dose of something like this. And the way that Indigo responds, I guess, the, the way anyone would, would be there, there will be panic, the way he rushes to the shower. And as the experience is starting to unfold... Again, there's that magic realist moment. So the, the shower is both pragmatically, the shower is trying to get rid of all this acid that is, uh, that's covering him, that's penetrating his skin. And it's also that this is the kind of the, the, the sacred water, the sacred, sort of, um, uh, sacred water of the planet washing over him. What's really interesting, I think, in terms of the account that Indigo gives of this overdose, is that... What it does is it reveals what he calls just the normal or the natural mind. And that this experience is um, every day and now, never, it's, it never went away. It's always, it's, it's always present for him. And it kind of reminds me of something from, um, in Wicca, there's a, a thing in the a piece of ritual text called The Charge of the Goddess, where it says, if that which you seek, you don't find within you, you won't find it outside of you, to paraphrase it. And this is very much what this kind of uh, LSD experience is about. So Indigo then goes to sit on the veranda, dresses simply, sits on the veranda, goes into meditation and kind of observes the scene. And the scene is just the scene. Yeah? It's just the ocean and the world and the, 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 the experience of being alive. And it's that uh, all perfection, all connection, reality, capital R reality, that's revealed to him through this experience. And that that's not to do with how much acid you've taken. Uh, it's to do with this illuminated understanding of the miraculous reality of existence. And so it's that kind of discovery within himself that's brought out at that moment by this initiatory, transgressive 
powerful act that then stays forever. I suspect that part of that is his fear that he's about to die. So there's nothing that brings you to the appreciation of being alive as the fact that you may at any moment suddenly not be able to function in the way that you thought that you were going to be able to. So on his way to the veranda, having washed underneath the sacred healing water, he lights more candles on there, relights them where they've been knocked knocked out by the, the accident that's just happened. So he, he gives himself a mission in that case which is always helpful if you're in a, a situation of emergency. It's like, what can I do? What can I do? So he has a, a practical thing that he's doing there. So he's lighting the candles and he's constantly saying the prayers, um, asking for grace, asking for the blessing of being able to continue with his life. And being in that state in itself, even without the added addition of chemicals, is something that really opens your mind to appreciate the natural mind that he was referring to there which is an apocalypse of reality where the the sheer raw magical beauty of the existence and the planet that we're on is so astounding that he's just struck with the awe of the normal so instead of seeing the chaos of the normal which is what we tend to do in a lot of our in a lot of our lives he's in awe of the normal and just the the simple reality of the moon rising and changing color as it goes through the different parts of the atmosphere or the light of it so for for me a large part of what he's going through there is not it's not the psychedelics it's that experience of continued existence when you're expecting that it might suddenly stop and go out Mark is one of three young students at Durham University who have recorded From the Rose and will be included in this episode. They do a great job of introducing themselves and the material, so I will leave that to them. Hello, my name is Mark Schooneman. I'm a religion and society master's student at Durham University um, with an undergraduate background in theology at Oxford. I... I founded a psychedelic society here in Durham where we've been doing a reading group of this amazing book um, and Leonard's been calling in. The section I want to read, uh, when I first read it, it brought me to tears, basically because it's an example of the way in which these altered states can turn into altered traits and the way in which you know the religious experience can turn into the religious life um, and may have a concrete impact on the world, specifically the world here of, a, of, a, of, a, of an orphan. Um, it comes from the last bit of the Mother Goddess of the World chapter, after the protagonist has been talking for a, a, long, a long while with Magenta um, about the spiritual history and the potential future. Um, and it's, it's a conversation in many ways about the ways in which Drugs might serve to swerve and alter the future way in which humanity, humanity's spiritual future. And it's a conversation that happens in this religious hubbub of Kathmandu, and it's all very topical and um, basically full acid trip territory. Um, but what follows is a concrete attempt to make the world a better place. And yeah, and it doesn't shy away from um, the ugly realities of poverty. Um, so they have this amazing, aesthetically beautiful trip, but it's not in complete denial about the real world. Um, anyway, I'm going to stop ranting now and start reading. Uh, page 195. Enjoy. Our day had been overwhelming. 
for we had walked down dusty paths with little water and no food. We were forced to stop and take rest. The local villagers received us with guarded looks, though, presenting conditions not encountered by most Westerners. Rude huts and itinerant vendors dotted a hillside. The stench from piles of refuse and burning plastic gathered in the haze from smoking fires. An oily, foul river flowed, almost stagnant. Half-naked ghosts of children toiled in gravel pits. In the reeking squalor, some wandered like tiny derelicts. There is a pharisaic want of charity in this community, Magenta remarked. He beckoned me to a crude table beneath desiccated palm fronds, supported by bamboo sticks. We asked for food from a half-blind street merchant in a shredded loincloth. He had only a bowl of sticky rice and a sliced papaya. At this humble offering, we, without warning, were changed forever. We saw across the alley a small, very dark and ragged Nepalese girl with bare feet, wearing only a dirty flower sack with holes for arms and carrying a toy pail of gravel. She was being verbally abused by a thin, evil-looking Hindu vendor. Her hair was matted with excrement. A trickle of blood trailed down her leg. As he shouted, she trembled visibly, her small, fearful voice barely heard. Magenta, with his powerful arms, tensed. The vendor struck the girl across the face, sending her sprawling, almost naked, her pail spilling as she clutched in one hand a wad of chiclets. Magenta and I leapt forward, but the vendor disappeared into his hut of tin sheets and cardboard. He left his wares, attended by an adolescent son, who displayed a sardonic smile and a kuari, a curved machete-like knife for chopping wood and slaughtering animals. We first approached the girl, where Magenta comforted her in Nepali. Is that your father? No, Baba. I was give away. He hurt me sometimes. She lifted her flower sack over her face for our examination. She stood there, with her grubby hands held high, clutching the soiled sack and shaking, revealing her nakedness. Our hearts shattered. How old are you? What is your name? Dropping her sack, she spread uncertainly a few fingers. Her name was You, girl. I remained with her while Magenta, blanching with fury, stormed into the vendor's hut. After a violently heated exchange, the boy fled into the shelter. Returning, Magenta discovered from the girl that she was sold as a toddler into domestic servitude to a poor family, on most nights beaten and raped, then fled with her sisters. The vendor and his son molested her in exchange for scraps of tripe and spoiled candy. She was shivering, fearful of our intentions. Magenta purchased a mango lassie from a vendor of fruits and ices and provided it to the girl. Her eyes widened with disbelief. She devoured the sweet drink in one pass, 
wiping a blemished arm across her swollen mouth. Spying a cart of used shoes, Magenta bought some pink plastic sandals that seemed to fit, while I located one Hello Kitty sock and one blue diamond argyle of a different size. We placed them on the girl's dirty feet and showed her how to wear the sandals. She smiled broadly with her few blackened milk teeth, then started to cry and shake terribly, lifting her flour sack again over her head to offer herself for the shoes. Her pudenda were bruised, her nipples were scratched and infected. She had cigarette burns. No, little one, you don't have to do that anymore, Magenta gently told her as he stood with the sack above her head in her grimy fingers and covering the anguish of her face. After some moments, she released her flower sack and stared at the pink plastic sandals. A group of Nepalese elementary students approached, the boys in white uniforms and the girls in matching saris with their chaperones. Some of the boys snickered loudly, ridiculing the girl in her sack. She darkened with shame, her bowels released to flood diarrhoea from the rich, strange mango lassie upon her Hello Kitty sock. She collapsed in her watery feces and sobbed helplessly. We gathered her up and stood her naked in a public fountain as Hindu wives, witnessing her bruises, shook their brooms at us in anger. As we went to clean her, she cried. Don't hurt me, Baba. Inconsolable, she clung to us in fright as we hiked to the Land Rover, then cowered in the back seat while Magenta called upon every orphanage in Kathmandu unsuccessfully. We carried the girl to a one-room, open-air storefront beneath a handwritten sign scrawled with an A.M. Ramachandran clinic in English and Nepali, where a Hindu physician wearing a smudged white lab coat, sat facing the crowds. He was blunt. These child, Sahib, have many healed fractures, facial and severe sexual trauma, and intestine parasites. With nobody care, kind sir, she dies soon. Rummaging among donated boxes and waggling his head, he gave us antibiotics and medications for worms. A saver volunteer quickly located a poor, elderly and lonely Tibetan couple whose children and grandchildren had fallen to their deaths in a bus accident near the remote high passes of Mustang. We took our captive to their simple dwelling with its pounded earthen floors by a fresh stream and a bunion tree. The white-haired elder and his wife, squatting by their cooking fire in tribal dress, stood and walked slowly to us clearly intuiting the reason why two white westerners had appeared with an abused and frightened young child. The grandmother brought barley soup and coaxed the girl from the Land Rover. After several small bowls were consumed, she wet a ragged cloth in the stream and washed the girl, wrapping her in a lost granddaughter's thin, worn sari. Magenta provided rupees and the saver volunteer's name, saying he would visit regularly. After some hours, as the grandmother sang by the fire a lullaby that once comforted her dead grandchildren, the girl, 
now with thumb in mouth, turned silently to hide in the priceless warmth of the old one's shabby robe. They embraced each other, rocking and whispering, the firelight reflected in the streaming of their tears. We left the rustic shelter with its few pots, its herbs and cooking fire, and the bottomless eyes of our little lost soul, our mother goddess of the world. For some hours thereafter in the Land Rover, as tin-roofed slums transformed into the grounds surrounding the king's palace, we said absolutely nothing. The weeks passed until my departure date, with conversation until dawn on the final night as the sky lightened. Magenta was seated on a venerable Tabriz rug, holding a Tibetan bell in one hand, and a vaira on the other, paired symbols of wisdom and heart. Behind him in the rude hut of an absent Rinposh, or teacher, was a magnificent Thanka, a Tibetan scroll image. Another wall displayed images of Buddhist paradises done in Shingham painting with plant pigments, crushed gems, and ashes of cremated bone. A mattress of straw occupied one corner, a small cooking fire the other. Nearing the end of my encounter with Magenta, we sought the delicious freshness of the early air and did long, slow sun salutations. As we glimpsed the sunrise, he reached a conclusion on what must be done. It was the refrain to a very old hymn. We feel society would best be served, not so much by a pill for intellect or sexuality, but by one for compassion, a medicine for altruism. Perhaps we have one. Above at first light, the wheel of stars turned in the morning's ocean. We stood in contemplation while before us, Kathmandu Valley was illuminated to the horizon. Our long drive to Pakara Airport was subdued. I held the glances of the Nepalese children and elders, both so familiar and otherworldly, as we passed through copses of dark yews and alder, then thorn trees stretched across the scorched meadows. Among the muddy trenches were the most fragrant of lilies and white narcissi, we entered again the elders' camp. The girl was still in their granddaughter's sari, but it was freshly washed and dried each day by the grandmother, who pounded it on stones in the stream. The girl wore her sandals with her Hello Kitty sock, and had been given the name Abir, or Fragrance of Flowers. With a stick she proudly made an A in the dirt. I reached into my pack and produced from Berlin a little girl's feathered angel's wings with a furry white halo and showed her how to wear them. After she was exhausted from flying around the shelter, I asked Magenta to translate a few words for her. If you learn to read and write really well, you will be an angel one day. The girl smiled shyly and made another A. The old couple put the wings and halo high on a shelf by the child's primer we had bought, one they barely could read, so wearing the angel wings would be a reward for her lessons. At Pakara Airport, Magenta waved farewell, then decided to join me. I noticed for the first time a forest of short, specialised antennae protruding discreetly from his dented thirty-year-old rover. 
There had been no visible electronics in the cab, only marlas and bells and incense burners and images of gurus. As the press of travellers surrounded us and we were herded past customs, I managed my last important questions. And the girl? Will you always see to her? As long as we are able. What was the grandmother's song that first night? I know it's impossible, but the melody was haunting. They are illiterate and devout Tibetan Buddhists, but during her own childhood she was for a few weeks at a Himalayan mission school made of mud and sticks, before an avalanche destroyed it. Her song was her memory from Tibetan into crude Nepali. In English it's close to this. Before he could finish the insurmountable press of shouting Nepalese and Hindus and monks waving passports swept me onward to the tarmac. I boarded the Royal Nepal 707, watching for the ritual goat's blood on the nose wheel. As we entered Indian airspace near Delhi, I declined the gratuity of Perian line. I checked my email, decrypting a message that had been anonymized through thickets of privacy servers, from Vanuatu to the Channel Islands. It read only, Jesus loves the little children all the children of the world, brown and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. That extract read by Mark is very harrowing and it has a happy ending, sort of, but the journey towards that is full of despair, horror, anger, not just at the acts of the people that are described within it, but at the, the fact that this is within a culture where this sort of thing has been happening for centuries and various other types of exploitation of people. The way that the knife is referred to that the young man has, it's a tool for cutting wood and for slaughtering animals. And that, for me, pointed to way, the way that this young child is being used as just another substance, just another fuel for just an object and not seen as in this compassionate way as another person. It's obvious from some of the things that happen in this passage that the food and the shoes and so forth, they're there, they're easy to, easily to hand. It's just the means to access these things which this child is being prohibited from having. And that in a lot of ways is the ultimate tragedy because if those things weren't there, you could understand why she is going without, but they are there. It's It's just a a real so poignant the fact that just from a decision from the people that are able to change the world for her her life is totally transformed from one of abject misery and exploitation to one where she becomes the treasure of this old woman who's lost her granddaughter and that was a, a really lovely way of matching people whose needs fit together so recipro reciprocally well so the, the loss of the grandchild, the loss of a parental figure and putting these beings in touch with each other. That's such a, a beautiful way for the, the, the events to pan out at the, towards the end of the story with their tears mingling as they realise that they found what it was that they needed. There's um, a bit where it talks about the priceless warmth of the old one's shabby robe, this most magical of things within this 
yeah, really harrowing narrative. And we know that you know the exploitation of people, the exploitation of children is something that goes on in lots of different cultures and lots of different forms. And there are yeah, really kind of difficult examples. This this tale is not by any means unrealistic. I think uh, whether that story is unfolding in Kathmandu or perhaps even in New York or in London, there, there are people that there are children living in such um, terrifying circumstances and to be able to wish at least in some measure for a pill for compassion on the world that we might care for this new generation of humans better and might show more compassion more ability to help and to heal those people is certainly something uh, earnestly to be wished for I was very struck by the image of the students dressed in white shirts and white saris passing by and laughing at the fact that she's wearing a flower sack, so just not even clothes. And then, and they're laughing at her for the, the way that the, these children can't understand quite what's going on, so that's their response to it. And then, um, even more horrifyingly, the way that the, the when she's being washed in the fountain... The women are angry and shaking their brooms and they're angry at the fact that her injuries are being revealed. So the, the the compassion that's lacking from these people is presumably partly because they can't do anything about it, but also they're not seeing the, the depth of the reality of what's there in a way that might ch- change their own behaviour towards this girl and maybe lead to some kind of redemption or some to lead to some kind of rescuing that didn't take someone from outside of the geographical place and time to arrive and rescue her. But the people within that milieu can actually recognise that here is someone who's in desperate need of help. Like, What is it that's stopping them from being able to, to act and, and save her? And we can ask that question about people in our own society and the people nearest to us. It's all very, very easy to point at this very extreme example of someone in another place. But we all see people every day that could potentially use our compassion and our help in however small a way. And perhaps that's one of the lessons that we can take from this this story. I think I think that's really true. I think the what the reason that those people don't see and whether or not the, the women who are shaking their brooms are distressed by the girl being revealed as naked or whether or not they are angry with the men thinking that they are the instigators of um, these injuries. I think that perhaps one of the, the, the readings from this is about we often don't see what we're f- just familiar with. You know? We don't see the oppression that's the everyday oppression or the violence that's the everyday violence because it's every day. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all the time. And when we visit another culture, maybe we see that those things more explicitly. You know, we're able to be more sensitive to those things. Mm, because everything's fresh in that situation, so mm. everything is revealed anew. Yeah, which is not to, not to say that, the, the, you know, that, that anyone is kind of lacking any kind of moral judgment. It's just what happens to all of us as humans. Unfortunately, we get, we get familiar and we get complacent. And it's just another day, you know, at Belson. And that's just the way it is. And it takes this, perhaps this pill for compassion or this intervention for us to really see where those oppressions and where those hurts are and to be able to try and address them. And something that helps in the addressing of these of these wrongs is the way that the Jeep is described as having a, a bristling antennae upon it. 
And so the, the internal trappings of the pictures of the gurus and the malas and so forth, which are the technology of prayer, that's all very well and good as, as far as it goes. But in order to act and reach the clinician that then evaluates the little girl's um, situation and then finding someone that the situation can match with, that takes the technology and the ability to reach out into the world to, to find these institutions, these places, these clinics and so forth. So that's that's something that I really found. It, it's another sort of overlaying of the, the, the magical world with the everyday realistic world. And so having that that spiritual wanting to reach out to things, but also the technological ability to do so, it's blending those two aspects of the world once again. I, I think it, it frames what Mark said at the beginning of that extract, which is that this is spiritually motivated, if you like, but it's it's deeply pragmatic. It's like, that's why that little detail of the Argyle sock and the Hello Kitty sock is really charming, because it's just like, that's what's to hand, that's what must happen. They can't be turned out like the school children. This this girl has to be redeemed with, with the, the mechanisms of uh, that are available here and now, and the reality of that situation um, has to be addressed in that way. And now, a brief message to our listeners from Dr. Julie Holland. Dr. Holland is an American psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist, and best-selling author. She is considered a worldwide expert on street drugs, and has been quoted in Time, Harper's, Slate, The Los Angeles Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Dr. Holland is also the official medical monitor for MAPS MDMA-assisted psychotherapy studies. Hi there, this is Dr. Julie Holland, and I would like to speak with you a little bit about Leonard Picard and the audio recording of The Rose of Paracelsus. Something magical seems to happen to me whenever I'm in the Netherlands. With a name like Dr. Holland, you're pretty much guaranteed to be treated well anywhere you go in that country. It opens up a lot of doors. My first trip to Amsterdam was slated for two nights and three days so I could see the rest of Europe during my month-long trek. I stayed over a week, of course, and it ruined me for anywhere else that summer. Magic. Every single day. My second trip to the Netherlands was to attend a conference on psychedelics. This may sound commonplace at this point in history, but I assure you, this conference in 1997 was anything for me, but typical. It was very early in the game, first of all. Only recently had the FDA given Charlie Grobe permission to do MDMA sessions with healthy volunteers, and the USA was not doing any psilocybin studies at all back then. Rick Strassman had gotten permission to give DMT, but the world did not yet know about it. But in Europe, things were happening. Dr. Spitzer was working with psilocybin. Effie Gazoulis Mayfrank was working with methamphetamine, psilocybin, and MDE, which is methylene dioxyethylamphetamine, sometimes known as Eve to MDMA's Adam. They were also giving mescaline in Germany and in Switzerland. Uh, Franz Vollenweider's lab was working with psilocybin, amphetamine, and ketamine. In America, we were lagging behind with only John Crystal presenting on his ketamine studies. But, oh, the Americans were in attendance at this conference. 
And this is where the Rose of Paracelsus comes in. I was at this conference in Vals in 1997, where I had the good fortune to meet William Leonard Picard, a dashing and swashbuckling scientist like none I'd ever met. His eyes sparkled, his face was luminous, not a platinum hair out of place. This is not a word I use lightly, I assure you, but he was debonair. His eye contact was intense, his smile genuine and infectious, and whatever we seemed to get into topic-wise, it seemed that we agreed. We shared a train back to Amsterdam from these suburbs of Vals, and we spoke at length about psychedelics, opiates, and the fate of the free world. At one point, I complained to Leonard about my then-boyfriend, now-husband, Jeremy, how I was sure he was the man I should marry, but he was less convinced. Leonard took the unusual tack of suggesting to me that I simply get pregnant and force his hand. An intriguing suggestion, and obviously an unusual one from a man, or from anyone. Anyway, I didn't take him seriously, and I didn't follow his offhand advice. I didn't really stay in touch with Leonard very much over the years, and I can't remember how we got back in touch, but he and I are now pen pals as he serves out his life sentence. It is heart-wrenching thinking of him behind those walls in Tucson, living out the rest of his days with limited fresh air and sunshine, with terrible food, constant noise, the lights never really turning off, and being subjected to humiliations on a daily basis. Leonard was smart to keep up his writing, as I imagine it gives him a way out of his confines. The Rose of Paracelsus must have taken him years to write, and I imagine it was a welcome relief from the solitude and boredom of his cell. I am really pleased to be involved in this project to bring Leonard's book to more readers and listeners. He has assigned chapters to be read by some stellar participants besides me, such as Brother David Steindl Rast, Dr. Ben Sessa, Joanna Harcourt Smith, Gregory Sams, Julian Vane, Amanda Fielding, and her son Cosmo Fielding Mellon. As much as I love and admire many of these contributors, the one I'm actually most eager to introduce to the world is Leonard's son, Duncan, who has inherited not only his father's searing intellect, but also his debonair aura. Duncan will begin his medical education soon, and I look forward to calling him a colleague in the years to come. Duncan is reading the acknowledgement section of the book, and I will be reading chapter six, which takes place at Harvard, a place Leonard knew well, and I knew briefly one short, amazing summer in 1982 when I was roughly Duncan's age. It is my sincere pleasure to be involved with this project on behalf of Leonard, a true prisoner of the drug war. May he be released, may his soul be released, and so may we all. Be free and without suffering. This next excerpt comes from Leonard himself and starts at the bottom of page 119.
good. A gift for you, a little reading from the rose. Set in a cafe in Salzburg, Austria, where chemist Indigo places his forehead to mine and induces a series of altered states of sounds, images, thoughts, and feelings. Here we are. He placed his hands together in prayer and brought his forehead to mine. Listen, he said, 20.2 kilometers above the Serengeti, the quietness of a geospatial satellite, low clouds and landmass rotating beneath. From the edge of the Gorongoro crater, the high desert wind. Over Congo at Mai Denombe Lock, 10,000 snowy egrets rising as one. Over Laos, a bamboo flute played by a naked child and the clapping of an old man in loincloth. The children of all the earth, jubilant, shrieking. Laplanders, Yakut, Arctic Inuits, Viennese crowds sobbing trying to touch Beethoven's casket, howling dark wreckage of a dying planet, silence of this precious island earth moving through unfeeling space, so very alone, a single soprano singing Misa Solemnis. Look, he said, 15.1 kilometers above Vincent Massive, Antarctica, the last calvings of a Larsen ice shelf, sunrise over jungles of the Pantanal, Moongate light upon Gobi Dunes. Sunrise over the last hunter-gatherers. The Malaysian Bajau, the Tanzanian Hadza, the Zimani of Bolivian Amazon. Sunrise over Yemen, the slums of Ashshab. Moonrise over orphanages of Batambang, through rough camel skins of Bedouin tents, the divine brilliance of the Pleiades. Sunrise over Kyrgyz boy milking yak in the Afghan Premier Mountains. Volcanic furnaces of Iceland. Aurorae dancing, reflected in eyes of a newborn Alut girl. Stars gathering for the host. The far dawns of once and future centuries. Think, he said, all thought a sphere of 10 to the minus 21st centimeter, expanding to the diameter of an atom to the Schwarzschild radius beyond the edge of universe. Every instant of comprehension everlasting. The moment we all learn to tie our shoestring, an unborn girl in the womb of a destitute mother in a filthy favela on a Rio hillside, dreaming of the day her equations will revise the standard model, the ultimate intelligence of humble prayer. The fields of mind, all knowledge, all cognition, all senses, all understanding, everything, all at once, and dear God, the light. Feel, he said, sorrow, desire, joy, anger, hatred. Eight-year-old lepers without faces in Bombay alleys, the endless tears of Christ. The irresistible hot river of a billion climaxes, the birth of angels. Two-year-old girl in El Paso being beaten to death for soiling her diaper. I have not the capacity to record further here this unspoken exchange, at once so familiar and fantastic. Almost as an act of mercy, he lifted his forehead from mine. It is finished. For now, he said. His words were gentle, barely heard, 
like a night whisper. They were the caress of innocent clouds, like a blessing from a benevolent sorcerer. New recognitions arose with each of my heartbeats. I felt like a child hearing their first poem, as if it were the springtime of our mind. So that reading is very poignant because that's William Leonard Picard himself reading from his prison. And he brings us a perspective in the extract of floating kilometres above the Earth's surface and then zooming in onto particular scenes of events, of birds taking off, of performances, of particular music, coupling this this higher this higher perspective with this everyday reality the everyday occurrences across history and doing that by listing them one after another it's an overwhelming tumult which just cascades into our ears and by putting all of these things in juxtaposition with each other it creates this amazing sort of tapestry which throws into relief the terror the wonder the beauty the joy the sadness and the just the every day of someone milking a cow all of these different things just everything all at once as he actually says in that that extract which is a uh, a really good way of that that's what psychedelic consciousness can be like at certain stages where you have everything all at once, where you hold all of those emotions at once, where you see all of those perspectives at once. And that's the, the narrative, the, the, the literary devices that he uses in this passage really portray that very successfully. I think that idea of having this multiplicity of consciousness is perhaps something that's particularly interesting with regard to LSD, because... There are many fabulous and valuable psychedelic medicines and they take us in kind of different directions. And I think one of the interesting things, both kind of historically, phenomenologically, and certainly for me personally with acid, is that it has this kind of iconic kind of status. But it's also, I think, I I have encountered many people who've, who've shared similar observation that it's kind of empty and without content in and of itself. So whilst... Uh, DMT might have, uh, or psilocybin might be, you can, you can sort of imagine the spirit, whether it's kind of chemically derived or organically uh, sourced. But acid has this kind of openness about it. Acid is both beautiful and terrible. And it's this, you know, it's this weaponized substance that makes you go mad, but is also this beautiful part of the counterculture that's implicit in the kind of the anti-Vietnam peace movement and it's got it's got so much stuff it's, and it's kind of it's kind of a bit like a blank sheet really it's like or like this kind of perspective from above where you're seeing all the beauty and all the horror all at the same time what you said about the, the extract being read by Leonard from prison I've spoken to him a few times by 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 phone and it's it's a very beautiful it's a very intimate it's a lovely experience lovely to chat to the guy but it's also it's really a poignant and powerful thing and I'm listening to these words which in my ear sound almost like a sutra like I recorded this chapter and I hope I did reasonable justice to the complexity of the language and the pronunciation in it so for me listening to this it's like this particular this section it is like a it's like a sutra it has this kind of rhythm in the language and this counterpointing of the everyday and the divine 
And at the same time, this is a recording that I heard a, a reading from Leonard when I was at a psychedelics conference in Berlin. And there was a, you know, a big audience that heard this piece play back. And as I'm hearing his words, I'm also hearing all of those background sounds, you know. I'm hearing the fact that this is being read to me, this beautiful, powerful, multifaceted gem of language, this astonishing gift is coming from this really difficult place. So it's a sutra read by a holy man uh, in some measure, perhaps. Leonard himself has compared his current situation of being incarcerated as being like being a, a monk in a cell again. He seems to be destined to return to being in a small room in relatively solitude. And this seems to be a pattern that recurs for him in his life, whether willingly or um, less willingly. So he's he's very much on this, um, he's in that mindset of being in, in that state. And I think that his earlier days as a monk and doing all that meditation has prepared him very well for the state he now is in and the fact that he's been able to create this book from within such a small confine uh, and get it out to the world and that we're here today talking about it and listening to his words and reflecting upon what they mean for us and for other people as well potentially that in itself shows that the universe has arranged itself in such a way that this message is getting out I'd like to say thank you to Leonard for doing his work there and all the people that have been involved in this particular podcast, but also to encourage us to look at what we, as people who are free individuals, what more can we do in our situation? What influence can we have upon the world around us? And just ask ourselves that question, which might take some months or even years to answer. The motif of the monk kind of comes back and back and back and appears in beautiful and tragic ways for our protagonist in the story and for Leonard as, a, as an author. but And I think that, yeah, I had to echo what you've just said. It's also about what you can give because it's okay to kind of go and be a monk and, and be isolated and so on and, and respect for people who want to do that as part of their journey. But what Leonard's also done is from that position of absolute incarceration being entombed in concrete and steel he's been able to give this gift to the world just in the same way that in isolated circumstances he was allegedly giving this magical transformative medicine as a gift to the world there's the the story of the monk the monk withdraws in order to kind of cultivate this magic which kind of goes out wider into the world and so it's a yeah it's a real honor to be able to read and comment on aspects of the rose of paracelsus this beautiful gift nishade devineau is a psychedelics researcher and postdoctoral scholar in medicine society and culture at case western reserve university school of medicine's department of bioethics in this passage, the narrator is at a hidden jungle estate near Phuket, Thailand, with chemist Vermilion and two spectacular consorts, the gifted women and lovers known as V1 and V2. They accompany the narrator in the night and reveal their daily practice of caring for the local children. This passage begins on page 454. From the Cloud Maidens The women awaken me late one night in silence, by V2 placing her hand softly on my forehead, 
We move with clouds of fireflies to the coastline as it reveals its undraped whiteness. The moonlight waits patiently. Muted, unearthly drum music comes from the dark village. As we enter the sea naked, their images are green, violet reflections upon a surface quiet as a moonstone mirror lake. The gentle waters lick and relick their slender, cherished bodies as they stand and extend their arms to bless the sky. They wade in the blue night as the fragile moon freckles the sea in glimmering points to the edge of darkness. They trail their hands in the deepening, phosphorescent water, dragging wide, golden-green fire that flickers like quicksilver. V1 and V2 come to me, the pulse of their ocean like warm silk. We become a silver moon riding our nest of stars as the fireflies follow our every motion above the rhythm and cries of the night. The last words I hear V1 and V2 speak are in the final evening as they sit together on a bed in a cabana. The outlines of their bodies are dimly candlelit, dancing behind ghostly, transparent netting. Perhaps they sense I am awake, watching the vision of them. We must make an offering to Esculapius, the god of medicine, V1 murmurs. See to it, V2 softly replies, and don't forget... I recognize the final words of Socrates to Crito, and fall into a dream, thinking they are saying it to me. In the early morning, as in Berlin, they all are gone. The privilege of being with them is replaced by emptiness. I manage my lonely bags, thinking that Vermilion and the women are not simply hedonists or Buddhists, but truly pagan, mythical, polytheistic. Recalling their disappearance in Berlin, I remember their first gift, the white wings and halo, now worn by a beer in Kathmandu. I hurry to open my valise. Therein is a small stuffed angel, her head bowed in prayer. It is identical to the angel at the little girl's tea party in the British Museum, when with crimson the worlds moved. Every image and event by the six had been thought out with precision, planted in my memory by these most excellent teachers. Honored by such devotion, I rush to find them. Collecting the tuk-tuk driver, awaiting me for the long sojourn on the muddy road to Phuket, I enter the outskirts of the village. There are sounds of eager cocks crowing, and the melancholy drowsy tinkling of goat's bells. Small tangerine trees stand alongside rude huts in the cool light, as flights of brilliant butterflies begin drifting in the pearly sky. Through the shade of vines, Early sun dapples over deep garnet roses and the velvet of wine-red cyclamen. At the edge of hearing, there are small children singing. The song is in Thai, then Pali, but their voices transmute to English and finally to the flat, broad vowels of the American Deep South. It is an impossibility in Thailand, unless I have stumbled upon Mennonite or Southern Baptist missionaries. It is overwhelming, a poignant bluegrass hymn from old Christians, 
sung in red dirt backwoods twang, as though they are settlers from the foothills of the Blue Ridge at the edge of the Shenandoah Valley. I look everywhere. Most villagers are still in their palm shelters. The beaches are white as tusks, the sky like blue glass over the dawn calm sea. Within sprawling brambles, goats bleat as the new day thickens with flower scents. There are ranks of marigolds, flame red, then moon white. Slim cypress trees move in the slight breeze, as if they are painting the sky. There they are, where they have gone every morning. V1 and V2 stand in their robes with many village children some naked, most in tatters like defeated angels, the children all singing words they do not understand. As they lift their voices of heartbreaking sweetness, everyone waves and smiles, then bows to me as one. Fighting tears, I bow to them. The following excerpt is from Ryan Place. Ryan is the event chairman and creator of the Detroit Festival of Books, which has 200 vendors and more than 10,000 attendees. He's also vice president of the Book Club of Detroit. In this passage, starting on page 380, the narrator is in England at a conference at Wilton Park. Surrounded by top officials and experts in the field of biological and chemical warfare, the narrator meets Magenta. They walk through a rose garden, and just like in his past encounters with the Six, this meeting turns into a transcendent and psychedelic experience. However, this time the visions are dark and disturbing reflections on the nature of war. The masters of modern biological and chemical warfare arrived one by one. Their black cars and chauffeurs passed the expansive lawns, grazing sheep, groomed thoroughbreds, rose gardens, arboretum, and stone chapel of Wilton Park an 18th century manor in Sussex. Each of these special guests was attended by formal staff, then led through the chambers rife with paintings, carved balustrades, and stained glass. Assisted to their small room and reading lamp, they prepared to confront the malignancy of unrestricted weapons harbored by rogue and state actors with the technical capacity to disorient, infect, or kill individual targets or large populations. Academics, strategists, 
and futurologists gathered to consider chemical clouds inducing psychosis, plumes of weaponized anthrax and smallpox, and vapors that paralyze or maim a political opponent or entire villages in an agonizing welter of uncontrollable suffocation, lacrimation, urination, defecation, and blistered death. Around the estate of Wilton Park Manor, with its vaulted ceilings of painted white cherubs, were paths where pairs of young village equestrians, girls of twelve or so, cantered their bay geldings. By the Tudor entryway, there were fragrant beds of peonies and buttercups, and red poppies that the fresh-faced local children in the evenings gathered for Remembrance Day. Following at Harvard the progress of international controls on cognitive agents for warfare, I appeared, invitation in hand, to be welcomed by staff and introduced among the British chemists and military attaches from Portendown, the UK version of American chem war groups in Fort Detrick and Edgewood Arsenal. A striking, soon-to-be-unforgettable maid from Edinburgh, with dancing eyes and skin like milk, dressed in formal black with a fulsome bodice, served hors d'oeuvres from a silver tray. The star-studded vernissage included officials from NATO, Whitehall, the Pentagon, private analytical firms, and the Chinese and Russian military. Most were concerned with containment, but the occasional face darkened with unholy powers, like some bete noir stealing secrets from the unsuspecting. These few individuals were the antithesis of those fearful of great evil. They affected a careless hubris, but a sensitive observer could see they were riddled with mistrustfulness from their long-practiced deceits. Although distracted by the conflicting ethics, I tried to engage everyone cordially and indiscriminately, even though the lovers of light would consider the dark ones as hyperborean swine. From indigo, I had learned to look for hidden agendas. The reception atmosphere, desiccated at first, evolved into collegial exchanges and comradeship as each found his own. It became an armed truce of the Earth's paladins and scientific lethalities, for all were delighted to find a virgin ear. I had mingled with some light-hearted cluster when, across the polished oak-paneled room, a very fit Englishman glanced my way. With some transfixing anecdote, he was managing to hold down in a corner a brace of the local vampires, each of his prey with a name card and the manor sherry. His hair was tinted and trimmed almost to the scalp, his coat custom-tailored yet unremarkable. At the edge of his cuff I glimpsed sandalwood mala beads and a new Rolex Submariner. Unseen by others, he bowed to me in a namaste. Reflexively, I bowed as well, then started. Magenta. It was rather a trek from Pashupanipath. I relaxed as if an old friend had come round, but felt his visit was not for me. The vampires were disguised as unethical pharmacologists from Islamabad in expensive suits. Magenta disengaged them with a hearty farewell a craft to deflect their suspicion. He approached me oddly, without surprise or salutation, but raising his voice quite audibly among others in the room, and inquiring of the poetry of Blake. Have you read that rebellious disciple of Swedenborg's myths? 
He brandished instead copies of North's Plutarch and Hollinshead's Chronicles, but avoided the usual Wilden Park references about binary bombs of hallucinogens or nerve gases or genetically modified Q fever. By this contrivance, he smoothly detached his companions, who had ulterior plans. Ever the devoted Hellenist, he slipped Pope's Iliad translation into my jacket, then guided me outside through the delicate rose garden toward the 200-year-old chapel. We were alone, but not by a tranquil Princeton lake or isolated within Nepalese religious frenzies. A contact high here would precipitate among closely knit circles of PhDs in unspeakable arts, all vastly skilled specialists in biochemical doomsday devices, as everyone took port, cheeses, and teas in the Wilton Park libraries. These were the heirs of the first chemical assault at Ypres, Belgium, in the Great War, where British soldiers choked in the trenches from the green death of chlorine. Collected here with us were many who defended civilization, but also those whose plagues would ensure a billion infectious corpses. I hoped the Rose Garden proved not to be that of Persephone, taken by Hades. As we passed on to the safety of the Stone Chapel's consecrated ground, an astral brilliance began to envelop us, a light before which all evil quailed. It was as though we were gently acquired by an advanced civilization, one that looked back upon its baser selves from that bright land inconceivable to those who would harm. Magenta remained wordless, producing only an antique Malacca bamboo cane with an ivory handle. As at Bodenath, he began circumambulating the ancient pews and vestry, tapping the floor as he slowly walked, reciting prayers in Latin and Tibetan. The chapel walls were inlaid with centuries-old remembrances of the notable, the loved, and the brave. To the cadence of his muted prayers and the clicking of his staff, I walked silently as well, even as the chapel's liturgical paintings and triptychs of St. Paul begin to quiver, then float in the windless and holy sanctum. It began suddenly, not as the luminous, benevolent aesthetics in Nepal, but as a devastating parade of religious conflicts. The slaughtering of beggars in the mosques of Wazul Khan in Lahore, the bloodbaths in the Peloponnese and Aegean recalled by Thucydides and Xenophon, the carnage of Belfast troubles and the marching season and the Catholic schoolgirls' bodies desecrated by William of Orange at the Battle of Boyne, the countless slayings of infants from the extremes of Kierkegaardian Calvinism, unrestrained even by the harsh wisdom of Talmudic Judaism. By the circumambulating invitation, we were transported out of our ken, beyond the celestial mechanisms of Bodenath, beyond the concentric worlds of Ptolemy's astronomical treatise, The Almagest, to where the very stars burned. Trapped in a beastly black hole, we crawled on our bellies, the tapping that of some banshee tempest of brimstone upon our flayed backs, to the places of perdition where medieval crosses were inverted and images of Christ replaced mirrors. Long lines of hollowed-eyed and starved women and children with shattered limbs moved over radioactive earth. Many cannibalized by 
vicious hordes are decimated by weaponized pestilences. With the last of human altruism, but a single shriveled rose, secretly held against a malnourished, diseased breast. Within these phantasmagora of moral repugnance, each second a thousand years, we were caught in an infinite regression of unspeakable suffering, until we fleetingly glimpsed through a crack in the grisly, bloody sky, the morning light of heaven. By grace, we entered a rapturous contemplation, recalling both the sorrowful and glorious mysteries. There was the odor of aromatic oils distilled from the relics of saints, and finally the scent of valerian. Through the narrow stone window of the chapel, I saw in the early evening a funeral swirling of rooks. The stars looked turbid. I turned, absorbed into the benign currents now manifesting, drawn at last into a laughing vortex of loving prophecies. Yet the disquieting prospects could not be forgotten, for we had been exposed to the chthonic, the underworld. It all stopped. Magenta was folding a chasuble, perusing the sanctus of high mass. As I listened, he began chanting a psalm, then intoned a te deum, while clouds of incense enfolded our somber reveries. I wondered if some of the conference participants might be the ultimate arbiters of human fate, and we the people, the endangered species, too late confronting extinction. We stood shriven in the garden of Banksia roses, survivors freshly imbued with exquisite sensitivity to opposing forces. Magenta never again referred to the religiosity of our walk through the Valley of Shadows. Among the roses, after we descended, he still demonstrated his findings on experimental memory drugs. He did a rhapsode, comforting me greatly, by reciting long portions of the Homeric epics acquired from a single reading. At last, both somewhat more steady then, we turned to enter the high seas of gentlemanly deception. So we heard there from Ryan reading about a gathering in an English country house of people that study war and the various weapons of mass destruction. Something that I took from that extract is the way that history is writ very large in that extract. There was a huge mention of the art that's present in the location, the various parts of the architecture, references to the garden and the various uh, flower beds and so forth that are found within that. The cuisine is talked about in a way that references past happenings as well, the history of that. Um, and also literature. There's a copy of the Iliad, which is slipped into the narrator's pocket at one point, bringing to mind the, the ancient classics, which again turn up in the litany of the different wars and battles that are mentioned. Um, and even the, the timing of the occurrence is quite poignant. So one of the things about the flowers in the garden is that the narrator describes them as being gathered by the local children in order to decorate the chapel for Remembrance Day, remembering those that have fallen and... The point of Remembrance Day, when it was originally started, was to remind ourselves of why going to war leads to so much pain and sorrow from the people that are survivors of that terrible thing. 
I think what's really interesting is the idea of the the chemistry and the warfare because there's a lot of references here to genetically engineered disease and biological and chemical agents. The passage speaks of the first use of chlorine gas during World War One, which was often described as the chemist's war. And of course, LSD in its turn had uh, at least attempts at weaponization, although other substances were found to be um, more reliable. So, and Wilton Park is one of those environments where for a long time this has been a kind of a meeting place for uh, what we amusingly call the defence industry in its various forms. And there's a really interesting kind of sense in this that these people are just doing this. This is kind of legit work. They're not being all undercover in the way that the six have to be in terms of their operation, because despite the fact that they are dealing it potentially in global scale death engines of chemistry and biology nevertheless they can sit in nice oak panelled rooms drinking tea in attractive environments in 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 britain there's an interesting bit as the contact high element in this passage starts to happen i think that there's a there's a little reference there about something that i often think about this imagining a kind of a future self looking back at the these humans and this behavior of this time and um and looking at how kind of you know primitive we are from almost a kind of like a star trek kind of perspective and then magenta goes through this ritualistic process of casting uh, i guess a kind of protective circle a protective environment within which they can have this experience of the parade of the horror of war and very interestingly particularly because it happens in a church the horror of war through the institutions of religion mm-hmm. and belief yeah. you know yeah the, ban- the banners of religion which are often used to incite people into these horrendous acts i liked how at the end of it the memory drugs allow magenta to recite a large passage of homer having just read it once, which again ties in the sort of the modern technology with this ancient classical literature, but also the fact that Homer would have originally been, the Homeric um, works would have originally been recited purely from memory and these hours and hours of word perfect, syllable perfect poetry would have been memorised by people without the aid of any memory drugs at all. The chemical technology that we have can be used not just for destruction, yeah, and again, it, it, it folds back for me very much on this idea of, you know, if you look at the story of LSD uh, as being kind of emblematic of, a, of lots of these kind of wider process, the way that this substance appears, and it appears, of course, in, you know, a neutral situation in war-torn Europe, and author is certainly not uh, looking at kind of, there's, there's not a sense of kind of an anti-technology um, narrative, I think, um, within this book. But it is very much trying to uh, understand, you know, how might we press these things into the good service for ourselves and the benefit of all beings in this kind of compassionate way. The way that chemistry, disease, drugs, these things have been and are and continue to be used uh, to enact huge violence on people. It's one thing to talk about World War One, which is you know safely in the past. But more recent conflicts, like the conflict in Syria and so on, have undoubtedly shown the use of these agents. And particularly in Britain, uh, relatively recently, just down the road from Porton Down, there seemed to be a, a rather strange nerve 
agent incident that took place so you know these things are abroad and happening right here now you know and and to be able to acknowledge that which is i think that what what they're doing by going to the church they're kind of like witnessing like the true you know the 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 horror of what humans are capable of as well you you have to kind of engage with that if you're gonna try and change things in some way these next recordings come from dr ben sessa Ben works clinically as an adult and adolescent psychiatrist. As a member of the Imperial College London Psychedelic Research Group, he has an interest in the developmental trajectory from child maltreatment to adult mental health disorders. In the last 10 years, Ben has been a study doctor and a test subject, administering and receiving legal doses of pure intravenous LSD, psilocybin, DMT, and ketamine and he has also trained as a registered MDMA psychotherapist. Ben is currently conducting the world's first clinical study using MDMA to treat addiction. He is the co-founder and past president of the UK's premier psychedelic research conference, Breaking Convention. He has published dozens of peer-reviewed papers on psychedelics and is the author of several textbooks, including the influential Psychedelic Renaissance. This first excerpt from Ben starts on page 78, and takes place at the Harvard Kennedy School. This passage describes the narrator's encounter with Ken Naus, a former senior officer of the CIA Operations Directorate. There were countless receptions on the top floors of HKS, with its mandarin calm, cinnamon walls, green baize tables, roped-off sitting rooms, New England paintings, and overview along the Charles from Harvard to MIT. Here we learned the easy aridities of social practice, and our hearts were bright. Several exceptionally promising young doctoral candidates were visiting. We arrived at one of the myriad gatherings for students to engage with faculty, governors, noblists, and rainbow of former White House officials. The latter commonly were defrocked high-level bureaucrats waiting out the current administration with HKS teaching appointments. Mingling with this electric assortment of potential encounters, each a railway to traditional worlds, we passed a gallery of presidential portraits from Washington to Eisenhower. Through the vocal scholars, beyond the well-tendered lawns, sunshine was rippling on the Charles. We soon spied a tidy, poised gentleman in his early seventies, standing somewhat apart. With tailored suit, tight military haircut, pale blue eyes and bow tie, he was reminiscent of a headmaster at St. Paul's or Coet. After light pleasantries, we entered into commerce with Ken Naus, a senior officer late of the CIA Operations Directorate, now the National Clandestine Service. He chatted as amiably as any Gloucestershire vicar, rather than one protective of unspeakable secrets. He was a master of war. 
Naus was a prime example of legendary CIA spies always in residence. Hobbyists all as talent spotters who harvested analysts from HKS classes. He was writing a manuscript on his early days as the young case officer who smuggled the adolescent Dalai Lama out of the Patala Palace in Lhasa. Through regiments of Chinese seeking his holiness for other than religious purposes. On a train of mules accompanied by monks with prayer flags and bells, porters with bricks of tea and yak butter samper, together with a small coterie of armed CIA personnel with encrypted radios, Naus and the Dalai Lama carefully treaded across the ice abysses and couloirs in the high passes of the Himalayas, from Tibet down into the lush lowlands of Dharamsala, India. Naus deflected our tentative inquiries into CIA tradecraft by easy and inoffensive verbal parries, the skills of a lifetime. He did acknowledge knowing Ken Olson, the biochemist under CIA psychiatrist Sidney Gottlieb, who died suddenly by defenestration, plunging twenty stories, either pushed or suicidal, after being overdosed by CIA employees. Yes, I am aware of Olson. CIA technical services staff purposely administered Olson LSD as an unwitting experimental subject in Operation MK Ultra during CIA's effort to weaponize LSD as an interrogation agent in the Cold War. Naus said little about Olson. Our benign generalities otherwise were not too pressing for him, so that we parted in an urbane way. I remained gratified by the gentlemanly manner of the secret services, if not their artful circumspection of actual intelligence information, for they were deft in creating a black hole from which no light emitted, save the smile of a Cheshire cat. This next excerpt, also from Ben, begins on page 80 and describes the various groups of students at Harvard. We continued up the Charles in the evening, where Memorial Drive traffic had been blocked off all the way to MIT. Beneath grand tents, almost nude taiko drummers in sweaty loincloths struck great drums in racy, overheated rhythms. Flocks of skaters swayed like seagrass as they flowed down open lanes. Semi-professional student mourners wore skeletal masks in a burial procession for the Chemical Weapons Treaty. Danish women engineers picked suggestively at the tassels of soft cushions beside owlish, frozen MIT students, while strobes and lasers shot from high suites in Lowell and Elliott houses. The light show precipitated thoughts of crimson and how Harvard students were not unlike the six. Both groups had a global theatre of operations. They were exiles of circumstance from many worlds, yet there was a fantastic poetry to them. 
Floating to the square, we saw Harvard women, fresh from encounters down the cobbled streets, teetering in high heels in the walk of shame for Puritans, or the stride of pride for Libertines. Parisian students sat with languid, fruitless airs, having lost their half-dozen pliant French mistresses, and now confronted by thinking women with advanced cognitive skills. They claimed no taste for a girl that night. Posses of diverse women students were practising the samba down Mass Ave, reeling hasty pudding dramaturges, flouncing in diaphanous lace and chiffon spikes, affected messy chic party hair and faux whorish latex pencil skirts. Clusters of cosmological physics students from Lowell Observatory wore fitted tops, corset belts, killer heels with vanity straps or hound's tooth and snakeskin pumps. Others, the last of the Egyptologists, danced with Professor Gropius's Bauhaus school designers. We had stumbled upon some celebrity haute couture catwalk of academic orgyists, where excluded and less well-feathered males grouped in local bars resorting to dropping the H-bomb, their matriculation in Cambridge, in hope of a date. College girls from west of the Charles to the Pacific were visiting. UCLA undergrad women on leave wore mouse ears. Dunster house men wore moose ears. Leverett house men wore rabbit ears. Mass Ave was rather like a galactic watering hole. I thought of the Harvard Botanical Museum nearby, where the inestimable Amazon explorer and ethnopharmacologist Richard Evans Schultz often had startlingly elegant, formidably serious grad students. Arrived from hot tribal nights in primitive villages in the Orinoco Basin, they insisted on keyboarding about hallucinogenic snuffs administered through blowpipes, while in the muggy Cambridge summers, the women writing their PhD theses were simply adorned with a macaw feather on a leather string, and were otherwise naked to the waist. So... I mean, first thing to say about this chapter, I really enjoyed this chapter, and I, I think it was chosen for me rather than I chose it. I liked it because I like universities. Um, I love the diversity of universities. I love the fact that you have thrown together people from all different parts of the social spectrum and all different disciplines and academic persuasions all kind of thrown together under this bizarre bubble of academia that's outside of everyday life. Um, and it reminded me of the many universities where I have worked in or been a student at or a lecturer at. Um, and I think what stands out with this and in, on all universities and why I liked it is there's a kind of unwritten code within a university as to whether you're an old don that's been there for 60 years or a brand new undergraduate everyone is entitled to an opinion because anyone could make a breakthrough at any point 
So you have to be really respectful of all the different groups. Now, that's me being supremely optimistic and uh, perhaps naive, because in fact, there's very large levels of um, hierarchy and snobbishness and um, entitlement and all the rest of it. But I think you ideally go into the university at any level with that kind of approach that you can you can make changes and you are at the cutting edge of of, uh, of academia where the new stuff happens. At least that's the kind of naive approach I have when I walk into a new university. But um, whether it's actually like that, I'm not sure. But that kind of it came across in the chapter when I was reading it that it just it reminded me of being a student, which I really enjoyed. I, th- I think, as I understand it, that Leonard was a student um, at the uh, uh, Harvard Kennedy School uh, in 1994. So perhaps that that is uh, you're picking up something about his his experience of that kind of excitement of being in this international milieu, and it's really interesting. Yeah. Really, really interesting with those um, two sections of your reading that. Uh, on the one hand, you've got this kind of narrative of the CIA and uh, MK Ultra, um, and all of that, the, you know, the weaponization of LSD. And on the other part of the reading, there's the the stuff about uh, Richard Evans Schultes and uh, you know his kind of connection to the the, the entheogens of, uh, of the Americas and, and and so on. So it kind of counterpoints those, those worlds as well. I think in 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 an interesting way. Yeah, which is actually the kind of perennial challenge of psychedelic the psychedelic community today um as we talk about so often you know this conflict between the scientists and the shamans and who 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 should ask who should um occupy the main position on the astral plane is it is it is it the the people in the white coats or is it the uh, plant medicines people and of course the answer is they both can learn from each other and they both have um, fantastic successes in their work and also some hideous abuses in their work on both sides and um, and in a way that sort of sums up the psychedelic experience as well it, when you strip away everything into just a pure white energy field of vibrations all of those different labels and um, um, games are dissolved and you're just left with everything thrown up in the air and what, what do we make of that and how do we piece that together into something that's useful for the individual and the society and humanity. Um, and so I guess this, the whole of this book is about this, this conflict, isn't it, of turning, turning something magical into something that's distributed and available and all of the malevolent forces that gather around such things, including governments and the CIA and um, the... The, the the people that that are kind of at the cutting edge of the psychedelics, you'd like to think, are those people who have this very wholesome approach of sharing and universal cosmic oneness. Um, but at the same time, it's an enormous piece of um, infrastructure and organisation to actually get this product out there and available to tens of millions of people if it's going to do any good. Um, and of course, doing it all under the radar of the regulatory authorities, um, or indeed with the support of the regulatory authorities in a clandestine way. So, yeah, what a fascinating story, really.
Hello dear listeners, I'm Estia, I'm 19, I'm from Paris originally but grew up abroad. I'm currently studying politics, philosophy and economics at Durham University as an undergraduate. And I'm going to read a passage from the third chapter called What the Doorknob Said. The context for this passage is the protagonist is discovering Harvard with two cherished friends, so meandering around and finding out a little bit more about the institution. So this is on page 83. The weather was changing. Great storms lurked off Kennebunk ports up the rugged main coast, wet leaves and mounds in the yard. Students were bound up tightly by the alien integers of their midterm grades. There were historionic silences and a pervading melancholy under cold rains. Intermittent stabbings of reality assured us of our imminent demise. The Charles was choppy with white crest from magisterial north winds. Even in calms, a heavy damp came off the river with dense blurred ground mists. A last sailboat wallowed and yawed for a while, then suddenly heeled before the wind, laying in sheets, shaking down the jib, coming about and tacking to shore to make fast. It finally turned on the stern anchor, helpless before the incoming weather. The high-spirited little warrior tribes of Harvard Square dwindled into gossip of the lazy and envious. Unconscious moral judgments flashed about. One unfortunate girl, common and fast-looking, kept swinging her leg so close to the needles and sores. After the hushing of the rains, as rare as sunlight dried its damp facades, Massachusetts Hall became an old, faded daguerreotype. We moved through cold currents, the air full of static electricity, our colored fantasies soon drained in the insistent river wind. The nights became frozen, the stars brilliant. I often walked by the crisp beauty of Elliot, Quincy, and Lowell Halls, alight by the lonely water of the Charles, thinking that this marathon intellectual orgy was but a spiraling labyrinth of concealed motives. The survivors thus far only whispered bruised affections, for our purest happiness was suspended until finals. The grad students looked for traction. The undergrads yielded their infectious high spirits, their champagne tipsiness, their spent kisses for new constellations of profound effort. Odd gleams of sunshine riddled the yard, torrents of brass-brown leaves swirled until the first heavy frosts peeled the sky clear. Lean, long-haired, well-featured senior women undergrads stalked the steps of Widener, their chilled cheeks blushing, wearing long mufflers, fine gloves or mittens, leg warmers, and ankle-length coat nipped at the waist. Lovely in their focus, they sought warm, silent alcoves to ponder Goethe, Swedenborg, with furtive glances at Exeter or Andover alums, or at each other. I spied Hulk, a victim of the historical virus, explaining with a cordial futility to ice-bound tourists the three lies of John Harvard's statue, as if the tale were dismembered fragments of a novel. I surreptitiously joined the group. The statue of John Harvard in the old yard was, throughout the year, but particularly during commencement, an academic mecca. A bronze figure of a seated youth in the 1600s it was akin, in religious terms, to the massive shrouded cube of the Kaaba, about which Islamic devotees on the pilgrimage of Hajj circumambulate counterclockwise in reverent masses. The statue attracted much devotion among international groups of visitors, no less than the rumored white meteorite within the Meccan shroud, now turned black from absorbing the sins of the world. In the yard, tourists congregated hourly before the statue which had become a type of genie representing the limits of human consciousness. Hulk encouraged tourists to rub the bronze buckled boots of this hearse suit founder with his fine countenance and frock coat, 
like actual students who appeared at the statue, to coax scholarly excellence to emerge before a reading period. Harvard's sanctuary was allotted often to the truly accomplished, and more rarely to wandering monks of questionable backgrounds. Visitors sometimes mistook these privileges for the tawdry commonality of prestige, a word derived from prestidigitation, or the making of illusions. However it was regarded by passers-by, or what sins it harbored so mutely, it was regarded with affection as the statue of the three lies. Hulk was pontificating marvelously and winked at me. Cast by Daniel Chester French before he sculpted a Lincoln Memorial, he said. The inscription reads, John Harvard, founder, 1638. But none of this is true. The statue is of Sherman Hoare, class of 1882, descendant of a prior president. I whispered, don't forget his pluck. Hulk threw me a foul look. Sixteen years after pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts Bay Colony purchased the acre of land that became the yard and founded the college in 1636. John Harvard, minister at Charlestown, donated in his will 400 volumes and 779 pounds, now an endowment of 35 billion. I began to flap my arms behind the transfixed tourists. 17th century Harvard accepted tuition as wheat, Indian corn, apples, honey, firewood, sheep, and uh, chickens. As the visitors moved on, Hulk and I remained at the statue, observing there were not three lies, but five. The seal on the left side of the statue read Veritas, with the original motto was Veritas Christo et Ecclesiae, truth for Christ and the church. And in all other images, the seal was of a shield with three open books, but the statue had the middle book facing downward, a Puritan reminder that not all knowledge is written. From these unsteady bases, the moral imperatives of Veritas unseated the prestidigitation of those early born members whose nimble wits first conjured the statue's lies. Passing this icon frequently, we were reminded to look beneath accepted reality, even that written in stone and bronze for centuries, to question even the underpinning of the university itself. We discerned with amusement our first and final lesson, that the true can also be false so that when we were at last set upon the world, standing in caps and gowns before John Harvard's statue at commencement, it was as if we were favored politicians at a landslide, recorded forever before a background of lies. So that lovely reading by Estia, we're brought back into Harvard, which are protagonist talks about as being the sort of you know this rarefied interesting diverse environment which occasionally welcomes wandering monks which i guess is a reference to to himself i guess one of the things that really comes over for me in terms of this part of the book is this interesting sort of play between truth and falsity where the image that we're looking at of john harvard from 1638 it's not actually a picture, a bronze of him. It's somebody else from much later. And there's a whole bunch of lies kind of embedded within that. But nevertheless, there is the reality of Harvard as this centre of excellence and this um, powerhouse of uh, intellectual and political might within um, the United States. Yeah, and to some extent, it doesn't really matter who the statue is really of because it's the having a memorial to the person that did found the 
learning the institute of learning in the first place that's the thing you're trying to remember not what he specifically looked like i thought it was very appropriate that estia who's a young student is reading this bit about students so i thought that was quite a nice uh, sort of looping back upon itself of reality there yeah the the way that the veritas that's talked about there the truth the part about it being the truth of the church has now disappeared from the statue as being not so important um although i also really like the way that as a puritan the middle of the three books is upside down because not all that's true can be written i really like that aspect yeah i think that's really nice it's interesting for me as a as a as a british person sort of reflecting on this because obviously this is like from the point of view of the american psyche or the contemporary european descent american psyche this is like a really powerful kind of deep moment within that history and yet from my perspective 1638 is relatively recent in kind of the 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 european sort of story and again there's this idea of european descent culture in the united states kind of sits on top of all this other stuff that's kind of you know unspoken and 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 hidden and the difficulties that that have emerged with the first nations kind of communities and the way that that story is played out is a big thing here it's also kind of amusing that the person who's doing the talk is called Hulk, and that's kind of nice, you know. You know this kind of uh, just kind of jokey comic book character kind of reference. You know, this this um, great American hero, Hulk. For me, as someone who's never been to Harvard and didn't really know much about the setting, not only this extract but also other parts of the this chapter and the book wider where it describes Harvard University as a physical place which is cold next to a river and the way people are dressing and behaving around it. I found that made it really come to life as being a place where people are, which I'm aware of of sort of the, the places like Oxford and Cambridge in the country that I'm from. So they are universities which are these sort of bastions of learning, these figureheads, these immense important cultural icons. But I also know them as real places where real people live. But for America, because that's so far distant for me, it was really heartening to hear about the people that live there and the way that they are with the the, the cold and the, the fact that it's a real place with real people in it and therefore subject to all of the things, including um, you know uh, the the convenience of various falsities, etc., that that brings with it. There's definitely a sense in which, yeah, the the landscape of Harvard, which is really powerful in the, in, in the rose is also really evocative for me as well because it, it sounds so European in some respects. You know, the, the, I'm not talking, you know, I'm not being told about sort of deserts. I'm not being told about sort of, um, you know, Grand Canyons. I'm being told about a landscape which sounds like a sort of European landscape, continental European landscape. This landscape where the fall, where the autumn brings this kind of cold and this turning inward and it's the beginning of the academic year and it's a really intense kind of period of... Um, forming and storming within the groups and so on, which is exactly the way it is in Northwestern Europe. Hi, I'm Jo. Um, I'm a theology student at Durham. So this extract takes place shortly after the protagonist's commencement at Harvard. Um, he's travelling the world and he keeps serendipitously bumping into Cobalt, who then sheds his classic contact highs and wisdom. So yeah, here we go. Page 490. Cobalt on tour of the earth always was a wellspring of stories. 
He moved among topics seemingly randomly, fleetingly, subject to subject, the listener discovering only periodically the interlacing crystalline perfection of his thought. At the sunset, a satellite was visible, inducing some deep reticence in him. He began alluding to rituals, primitive peoples, and the meaning of blood. I could see no connection to the transit in near-Earth orbit. The Bushmen of the Kalahari, he said, burn fires and offer prayers to the space station overhead. The astronauts, in turn, see remote lights north of the Orange River and south of Lake Ngami in Botswana, and know some of the fires are for them, an interdependency of faith and magic. In the South African deserts, the same event occurs among outback aboriginals, a massive international surveillance apparatus, gliding beyond the sky, looking down, Earth's ancestors by rude fires looking up, the future and past in reverence to each other. But the Bushmen may survive us. Ah, you know that. Our science may lead to mass extinction, with their flutes and dance and incantations surviving. Each culture is the height of its own evolution, the tips of divergent lines. Exquisite that we care for each other, they in the dignity of their songs and prayers, and we in our humble awareness. We now are by the limitless ocean, as cobalt range through the spectrum of what will come, speaking of computerised and holographic human simulacra, three-dimensional heads or bodies from advanced AI, human identities. They related in any person's voice, incorporating every detail of one's lifelong digital record, and would be indistinguishable from a deceased parent or child. He mentioned such wildly alterative futures casually, almost like a giddy friend on an outing. Yet he had a saintly aspect of each word being some great gift, its utterance a compassionate act. He was never an excited or blustering fellow. His every action, however minor, was considered. You've heard of the AI outcome where thinking machines unified to solve the unsolvable? It came from an early initiate, a biochemist at Boston University. I assured him I hadn't. It's fiction, of course, he said. Even the narrator is an illusion. He smiled. I felt the tug of multiple identities, of other dimensions and selves. Cobalt always took the long view, whether into past or future, myth or reality. He had a pronounced tendency to the cosmic, although with affection and balance, like an astrophysicist, delighted at the presumption of mathematics embracing all of space and time, describing both tigers and galaxies. Computer data warehouses expanded, he began, flinging an arm into the air. All information went to the cloud. Data grew boundlessly for ceaseless generations. A billion years of every record maintained forever. Physicists, concerned with the inevitable death of the sun, asked the global computer an insoluble problem. Can entropy be reversed? Artificial intelligence devoted much of the cloud's processing power to this conundrum. Whether the running down of the universe, entropy, could be changed. The computer ultimately announced its conclusion. What was that? Insufficient data at this time. But how was the conundrum solved? 500 million years passed. The solar-powered global computer now occupied much of the Earth's surface. The spectres of war and pestilence long had been eliminated, but data continued to aggregate. The seas died. Stellar migrations absorbed the populations. The last human on Earth asked the question, can entropy be reversed? The global computer updated its investigation. I know, insufficient data at this time? The last rays of the sun enlarged to a purple glow beyond our beachhead, then receded into blackness.
Yes, the universe was dying. The supercluster gravitational lens CL0024 1624 disappeared. The last stars went out. The Higgs field, the cosmic microwave background radiation, all gone to black, absolute zero. The last mind of man was only a drifting spirit. The computer occupied all extra-dimensional space. Merging with it, the final consciousness asked, Can entropy be reversed? The last thought, insufficient data at this time. Stars crept in the moonless sky above us, as if strewn by the forgiving hands of grace. The hyperspace computer existed only to contemplate the insoluble solution. Countless eons passed, suddenly expanding to the limits of the universe. It then contracted to a diameter less than that of an electron. It had arrived at a solution. What was it? I asked. Let there be light, the universal computer said, and there was light. So, of course, it's appropriate to have a theology student reading that mythos that's recounted uh, by Cobalt. I guess one of the things that it makes me think of before we go into the sort of the you know the mythic side of this story of the kind of global supercomputer that ends up kind of recreating the universe and all that sort of stuff is is just that reciprocal kind of relationship that's spoken about between the people on the African savanna lighting fires, observing the satellites making their transits, and the people on you know the the, the people viewing the the Earth from the satellites as yeah, part of this. The, the lights in the darkness from both of those perspectives. Exactly. The these two are the sort of the out, outward tendrils or the outward what was the word that he uses. But the outward fingers of the sort of the branches of evolution, where one culture has gone very much down the route of living with as little as possible, and the other culture has gone down the route of living with as much as possible, would be my own um, distinction of those two ways of looking at things. Cobalt's very interested in computers, data, surveillance, all that kind of thing, and we know. You know, inevitably, these these are double-edged swords. You know, your mobile phone allows you to have real-time communication with other minds across the planet, and also means that you can be tracked very successfully by a whole variety of people, government agencies, and indeed others. One of the interesting things I think for me is that Len is actually sitting outside of a lot of this. Yeah, so he's been in jail for twenty years, and so while the digital surveillance, connection, encryption. Uh, observation, social media, multiple discourse revolution has taken place. He hasn't actually played a part of that. So kind of Cobalt, I'm guessing, you know, from, is that kind of character sort of imagining very successfully, uh, I think, into this world of kind of uh, cyberdelics and interconnectivity and cloud-based computing and the kind of future shock AI world from somebody who hasn't actually had very much kind of connection with this world as, uh, as as an individual and as an author for a very long time. Yeah, Leonard's not had any direct contact with that except through basic email technology. So it's quite fascinating that he's got this quite um, quite accurate philosophical perception of it, although he's possibly not quite so aware of the terror of adverts, which is the bane of everyone's exist- everyone's internet existence. So yes, you have government agencies tracking you, but far more insidious and far more um, affecting of your everyday reality are the way that adverts just burst in upon your every communication and every media experience. And that's something that Leonard is not quite so aware of, I suspect. 
So the the sort of the very science fiction idea of this global sized computer, which will exist, has existed in the future, because we're kind of having this story told to us from an eternal outside time perspective. And the idea that this computer then expands along with the um, heat death of the universe and expands and expands until it takes up the entire universe itself with this uh, echoing question of can entropy be reversed, which then causes it to restart the whole Big Bang process once more. And that rebooting of reality happens with the words from the book of Genesis and the Bible, let there be light. So there's this sense in which this kind of hyper-technology, again, folds back into this kind of spiritual domain, looking once more, reminding us, I guess, of the, the, the first part of that extract, this relationship between these cultures that have developed this sort of spiritual way of interacting with the world, as opposed to these kind of like hyper-technologized ways of viewing the world, and the fact that these two things are not really distinct, at least in Cobalt's mind, that these are part of one kind of mythical uh, whole one mythical reality and they're even actively looking at each other and knowing what the other is mm. that for mm. me is one of the most beautiful parts of this is the way that the the aborigines are looking up at the space station and they know it's a space station and that there are people in it and the people in the space station are looking down at the firelight and knowing that there are people down there so they're not even looking at this as an abstract kind of thing but they're looking at each other as it says with care and that's that's really lovely it's a both and rather than either or like a lot of the book Bruce Van Dyke is a disc jockey and an acquaintance of Leonard's. Bruce has done quality time on the air in Reno, San Antonio, Denver, and Tulare, California. The inspiration for his life path occurred while he was pulling a late shift on the student station at San Diego State, KCRFM. It was a simple but lasting epiphany. If I can just get someone to pay me to play records. Currently, Bruce is perpetuating a format of interest mainly to the eclectically curious, a programming approach called Schizoclectica. His station will proceed with gusto through a random garden of musical genres. In this excerpt, starting on page 366, the narrator visits Afghanistan to fulfill a promise he made to Akbar Bey, a man he befriended in prison years earlier. The undulating brown plains of Afghanistan pass slowly beneath my aircraft, their vast abysmal reaches dotted by clusters of mud huts below the pristine magnificence of the Hindu Kush. Seemingly unchanged since the medieval era, this land, with its everlasting purity, was an expanse of sparse fields and stony walls. It appeared peaceful from the air. Yet behind this pastoral image was the hair-trigger of rapacious strife, for its peoples were the descendants of massacres in the three Anglo-Afghan wars, in a land where the first sound a newborn heard was gunfire, celebrating its birth as its mother sang of ancient battle. Children were reminded of how many British their ancestors killed as they played with East Indian Company coins handed down as heirlooms from British corpses. This journey was a duty to Akbar Bay, one promised so often as we sat together on a prayer rug in prison, sipping sweet black tea from crudely fired handmade cups beneath the only tree, a wretched little birch with few leaves for shade. We watched as disoriented inner-city crack addicts 
stumbled in circles nearby. The first to be released, I vowed to bring a gift to his family in Central Asia. We swore solemnly to share a proper tea, with rice and almonds, free one day, beneath the arching blue sky and crystalline white peaks of Afghanistan. Down from Kathmandu through Delhi, transported in a doubtful Russian Ilyushin 6 overflight across Afghanistan, I aimed first for Tashkent, Uzbekistan, to meet with Afghan contacts. Tough Uzbeks, Hindu families, and ethnic Slavs filled the rows. Sheets draped unoccupied seats, and white fog poured from air vents as hostesses in blonde bouffants and trim black microskirts offered paper cups of Coca-Cola as if it were sacramental wine at communion. As our aircraft turned toward Uzbekistan, I could see the Fergana Valley, a finger of Afghanistan 218 miles long and only 11 miles wide at its narrowest, where rough brigands and noble tribes on horseback rode, traded, and fought between the mountains of Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Pakistan, and China. The British surveyor Durand created these borders to point at China as a barrier against northward movement of hordes from the Indian subcontinent. Durand arbitrarily drew the lines based on geology and the politics of empire, separating the region's tribes into separate nations and producing endless strife. It was a triumph of geographic artifice that failed to comprehend these deeply interwoven bloodlines. The Karakoram Range rose along the Hindu Kush mountains down into the fabled Khyber Pass, while the vista of peaks to the east included the spectacle of Chomolongma, Everest. I thought of little Abir in Nepal, wearing her thin, worn sari, and reading her primer by firelight, lost in the vast range of mud and snow. Researchers on Central Asia at the Kennedy School had briefed me on the regional strongmen. Dostum, of course, the French-speaking poet Masoud, the rapacious Hekmatyar, the Uzbek Karamath, and other potentates. As Tajikistan appeared on the shimmering horizon, I thought of its mad president Nayazov, the last of the Stalinists, whose ruthlessness included, commonly at gunpoint, a bizarre personality cult. He had banned libraries, dogs, men's beards, and lipstick on newscasters. In the capital of Ashgabat, his stern visage gazed at the oppressed from a multi-story golden statue of himself. It rotated through the days of each week and the months he had renamed, even during April, now the name of his mother. The Cambridge researchers advised caution. One emphatically recalled the last warning of British commander Sir William McNaughton in the First Anglo-Afghan War. This country is one mass of loose gunpowder. McNaughton himself, another historian quickly interjected, arrived triumphantly on elephants with an entourage of camp followers, but fell into disgrace. By what means, I politely inquired. In the end, he was quartered by sabers. His hands waved on sticks to taunt his captive men. 
They paraded his torso through cobble. Where was his head? Traded in the bazaar, he replied with a reluctant air, cradled in his horse's nosebag. The placid, limitless fields, falling away between the frozen colors of the Hindu Kush, thus belied the turbulent background of this country. Even now, as the Taliban crept northward in Toyota jeeps affixed with heavy machine guns, this same mythical land was occupied by remnants of the Mujahideen, the former anti-Soviet freedom fighters armed by CIA. The researchers produced anecdotal reports that hard-pressed troops unflinchingly devoured or copulated without shame their donated Tennessee and Egyptian mules. The only other Westerner on the aircraft was a war correspondent linking from Tashkent to Frankfurt, a lean, crew-cut German national with a ripped bush jacket and battered sunglasses. He asked of my intent and then gave advice about action in rural areas. I had a few questions. Analysts tell me there are pockets of renegade Russian soldiers that traffic heroin across the Tajik-Uzbek borders and women down into northern Afghanistan. Your experience? Perhaps a few established groups who pay tribute to the warlords for protection. But in the countryside, lone survivors discovered by the Muj after the Russian pullout were treated quite poorly, held in desperate rooms. Other things. What do you mean? British special forces sporadically repatriated captive Russian soldiers that the Muj had driven into madness. They were severely diminished, barely functional, often hospitalized. How? Why? The Muj spared their lives only if they prostituted themselves on demand to circles of Afghan troops grown savage on Naswar opiated snuff, passed around naked, surviving only on scraps of offal for years. Although this was a land of frequent bright smiles and formidable courtesy, it was also a maelstrom of periodic butchery, unpredictable lust, and common treachery. It was a land into which I, sapped by growing trepidation, ever so slowly descended. The reception desk at the rude Soviet-era Hotel Uzbekistan in Tashkent looked upon a sea of plastic chairs populated by disoriented arrivals and questionable transients who were murmuring confidences or shouting excitedly in Dari, Uzbek, Russian, Pashtu, Urdu, esoteric Indian dialects, and most rarely, English. A mammoth cement rabbit warren with tiny cells, frequently workable showers, iron-hard narrow bunks, and steely Russian matrons guarding each floor and one's room key, the hotel was the Central Asian rendezvous for those who envisioned hustling the East. This waiting room was a crossroad replete with silent pock covert operatives, engaging Tajik conmen, insolent Bangladeshi hustlers, 
harried translators, raffish British refrigerator salesmen in cheap suits, and florid Germans purportedly buying gypsum. Close by an abundance of risky deal-making, a fearless and inspired missionary or two assume the safety of rickety elevators while eyeing a discreet brothel of multicultural ingenues. Reigning in hidden hallways, most were the flowers of Karachi and Bombay, now cut off from their roots. A few others were the daughters of stranded post-perestroika Muscovite engineers, up from their tidy dachas along the renowned Silk Road and the deserts of Samarkand. Suddenly embraced by Akbar Bey's brother Zalmay, smiling, besuited, and trying his few lines of rough English, I soon was discomfited on a street with no name, accompanied on all sides by imposing surly Muslims and obdurate Turkmen. We marched down through mazes of doors into the unlit basement of a crumbling building of uncertain function, all in a grim, unsettling silence. Entombed twelve thousand miles from home with unfriendly strangers who could dispatch me easily, I fell into reveries of the humble monks and nuns at the monastery, murmuring their prayers for world peace. Escorted into a small office by a brusque and well-muscled thuggee who wore a thick black mustache, together with an elderly hunched English speaker of threadbare competence. I spent some hours after perfunctory greetings in a hazardous standoff as speechless, unsmiling servants brought the ritual tea. A heavy-set Turk at last appeared. Dark, bloodshot eyes, open collar, expensive shirt. He settled behind the desk for a while. The only sound was the clicking of palms from a hot dusty courtyard. With his commanding presence, the Turk made an abrupt, gruff demand. Why are you here? Everything focused on this moment. I presented a letter of introduction in Dari from Akbar Bey. The head man, wary and cautious, glanced at it with a dour look, then placed it on his desk and fixed his guarded eyes most unwelcomingly on me. The dry heat lay on my nerves. It was my turn. I bear greetings from your brother, Akbar Bey. We were imprisoned together for years, and each day I promised him that in freedom I would look after his family. He sends the blessings of Allah upon you, your wife, and your children. To this, my interrogator at once broached the central and delicate issue. By now, he must have cooperated with the police. The room wavered. The dismal, hand-plastered walls seemed tightly confined, foreign and askew. A fly drifted lazily too near a sticky strip thick with disemboweled insect carcasses. The ancient translator slowly struggled to deliver this accusation in English while his master stared at my expression for any sign of duplicity. 
affecting uncertainty with the translation, I waited, collecting my thoughts until he was quite finished. I assured both of them most carefully that Akbar Bey had maintained his integrity. No, he has said nothing to them. He is serving all of his time. I know. I was with him every hour of every day for many years. The Turk tapped his fingers for an endless moment. Elbows on desk stared at me. I remained still, clearly at their mercy. After an uneasy and protracted period, he finally smiled. How do you find Tashkent? he asked, grandly presenting an elaborate business card. We broke into cautious civilities. As he summoned more tea, and the tangible aura of danger ebbed slightly. We spoke of his offices in Dubai, Istanbul, Moscow, and Delhi, and of the multifarious nature of his dubious enterprises. I lightly proposed he develop English customers, and, as with the prospect of honor among thieves, we quickly became friends of convenience. The door to Central Asia was open. So that was Bruce Van Dyke reading about Afghanistan. What were your initial thoughts? For me, one of the enduring images of this, which is repeated elsewhere in the book, is the conflict and the confluence of things that are beautiful and terrible. So Mm. we have our narrator descending from the sky into this place which is you know from above it has this kind of pastoral beauty and it's also the site of the playing out of the 19th century great game and the series of anglo-afghan wars and terrible 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 levels of violence you know it's kind of like a sort of british russian version of vietnam that he's descending into and so from above it's this kind of like beautiful mountain ranges and dwelling places and then on the ground it's uh, quite a different story mm, yes the the phrase the anglo-afghan war doesn't quite describe it so well because it was more the war that happened in afghanistan between other forces afghanistan is very much the chessboard of the continental players of britain russia and various other countries in that area um, with afghanistan very much getting caught up in all of that simply because of where it is and yeah going down from the and from the aeroplane descending there, I had a real sense of the narrator looking through the window and seeing what he could see and describing that, but also knowing the deep knowledge of that particular part of the world, which he would have got from his time with his friend Akbar Bey in prison, and also from his own knowledge about the area, which is the, the deep history of the different conflicts, the customs of the things that go on there. And having that knowledge adds so much more to what you can visually see of an area. There's an interesting little aside where our narrator talks about being uh, sat together with Akbar Bey on the prayer rug. Mm-hmm. And whether or not that's like a figure of speech or whatever, I don't really know. But it kind of has that. Uh, and another thing that I think is repeated again and again in the rose, which is this kind of a sort of perennial wisdom, a kind of an idea that spirituality, that our relationship with the sacred God, you know, whatever you want to call it, that that kind of transcends all of these boundaries. And there's an interesting little aside in this as well, where he, where he talks again about the 
story of the East India Company and the, and the British in, in Afghanistan and how they drew these borders which continue to, if not create strife, then certainly to be real, a real sort of part of that kind of kind of uh, ongoing storyline of difficulty for this nation so there's these kind of arbitrary borders that we draw between you know islam or christianity or whatever and actually the human experience of the kind of relationships and uh, with each other and with the sacred so i think that the whole of the rose points out is again in microcosm very much present in this uh, in this little excerpt one of the things that he points out to do with the idea of countries as well as the idea of the way that borders cause dissent is the way that by having a country you have a ruler over it. And the example that he gives of the Tajikistan president with his statues and uh, naming the months after his family members and the various other bizarre personality cult things that he has going on and um, not allowing people to grow beards and all sorts of other bizarre and fairly arbitrary rules which are just demonstrating his power over those people that live within the prescription of his power base um, that just goes to show how ludicrous this idea of having a person in charge of a country which is a very much a fictional uh, proposition in which up until fairly recently in humankind's history didn't even exist as a notion so this idea of lines on a map defining who we are, what we do and what we're allowed to do is a bit silly. There's another really interesting thing that, that for me comes out of this reading, and it's quite a. It kind of echoes what you're saying about the the arbitrary nation uh, uh, nature of nationhood and of these divisions, and and obvious in the case of kind of you know despotic crazy rulers, mm-hmm. whatever that means these days. And it's about how uh, Akbar's brother is really interested as to whether or not uh, Akbar Bay has communicated with the police. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the interesting thing is that our narrator's words are being written by somebody who is in prison. And it's interesting in terms of looking at the American law with regard to things like conspiracy, how much the kind of the imposed nature of these these rules, which exist for all kinds of reasons, often to do, I would suggest, with a kind of concern that legislatures have for for conspiracy. I mean, you can see, in, say, for example, in the case of France or the United States, how those nations would be very concerned with conspiracy because they know it works because it founded their very existence. Yes, indeed. So in the case of Akbar Bay, he hasn't confessed to the police and his brother is very is obviously reassured about that. I don't know with Leonard what his story is with that because, you know, there's a lot of, as I understand it, in America, there's a lot of kind of horse trading as far as, like, the law is concerned. I know talking to people like Amy Pover from the Can Do Foundation, looking at the level of the way conspiracy law in particular in the United States is used to put people in jail and put people under pressure in order to break down these conspiratorial kind of organised crime or drug distribution or any of these sorts of things. And the way that those laws, whilst perhaps under certain circumstances they do have value, they seem to me to be unbearably draconian and kind of uh, to have a a, a sort of Kafkaesque madness about them, which frankly is not much different from despotic rulers in bits of the Middle East. Mm. Yes, and I'm reminded by the 
um, the the rule which no longer applies. The the when we, but when we were growing up, we were hearing about the three strikes and you're out legislation, which was passed in America, which meant that if you were con- convicted of three crimes, then you had to be sent to prison for the maximum sentence that was applicable for that crime. Um, and judges were being forced to pass out sentences, which they definitely did not want to. And it just made a mockery of the whole situation, the idea that the law had any kind of fairness to it or intelligence. Intelligence, it. spirit, uh, humanity, yeah. yes. all of that sort of stuff. Yes. You look at, say, the case of Timothy Tyler, the um, uh, fan of the Grateful Dead, who was released relatively recently from jail after serving an inordinate amount of time for dealing a very small quantity of LSD. And again, for me, like these arbitrary lines on the map that have caused such trauma and around Afghanistan and the kinds of human writings down onto the onto our experience, they are undoubtedly kind of totalitarian, despotic and yeah, not good. Not good. Making a monocultural overarching rule for how people should behave is a ridiculous idea because mostly people know how to behave well as long as things aren't going really badly for them and by creating these overarching unforgiving and unflexible rules which is one of the main failings of them as well as the creation of them in the first place but refusing to have any kind of system of well this is mitigating circumstances or in this particular case this person didn't know what they were doing um, because of either mental health issues learning difficulties different things like when you look at the prison population in most of the world but particularly in america the vast majority of the people there suffered abuse as children were brought up in terrible circumstances or have other very serious medical problems wrong with them Uh, particularly at the moment the mental health issues which is widely recognized by the prison system itself who are very deeply unhappy by it because they don't have the facilities to deal with people in that situation it's it's really cruel it's really cruel how it is at the moment. It makes me sad because there's so little chance of anyone being able to redeem themselves, which is, according to the prison reformers in a large large um, proportion of the European countries, back in the sort of the 19th and early 20th century, a lot of the prison reform at that point was all about finding resent- redemption for people so that they could work out what these people needed to be rehabilitated and to rejoin society as valuable humans so the fact that america has very much of late gone in the other direction as has the prison system in this country the uk to some regard as well um, it makes me sad it makes me sad because people know that it doesn't really work incarcerating people in this way here organic natural foods pioneer and author gregory sams reads of leonard's final days of freedom visiting Anne and sasha shulgin and of his last encounter with the beloved Sasha. This passage starts on page 556. Evening storms were rolling in from the Pacific. One could smell the wild sea and hear the troubling sky. As I left for the Midwest, Sasha Anand's magical compound was high in the clouds, thinning away in whiteness. I worried about the meeting ahead, the strangeness of my new subject Skinner, his captive girl, the near-lethal drug mixtures he gave her, the coldness of his eyes. Events happened quickly, frightening, cataclysmic events with no warning. 
I didn't know on the endless journey to Kansas that soon I would be incarcerated for life, or that these very words would be written from a remote and forgotten prison cell, or that after a bleak decade, freezing and alone in a special housing unit beneath a maximum security federal prison, I sometimes would use my one monthly call to reach out to Sasha and Anne. Even from this perspective of so many years entombed in cement and steel, I remember well the last night we spoke. I crouched beneath the narrow slit of a handcuff port in the 300-pound steel door of my cramped cell and held the phone for the permitted 15 minutes. I'm blind now, he confided. Although Sasha's extended family throughout the world long had known. Galileo was blind the last ten years of his life, I reminded him. Well loved by all that knew him, Sasha's life was truly blessed. Our last words together were not on chemistry, but on music. You could still play your balalaika, I said. His father was Russian, the fine triangular instrument of family heirloom. Sasha was ambulatory somewhat, due to the loving care of Anne and his Tibetan woman caregivers, who daily massaged his legs and guided him to sit in his beloved laboratory with friends and colleagues who came to honor him. How many balalaika strings are there? he asked. Six, I replied uncertain. Actually, there are three. That's right, he said, for he never discouraged anyone by asserting his knowledge. Then he said his final words to me. It was the last time I would ever hear his voice. There are heavenly harmonics. Greg, I wonder if you could give me a few reflections on that excerpt that we've just heard from the Rose. Well, that excerpt is uh, key. If that excerpt wasn't there, we wouldn't be reading the book. There would be no book because that is describing the onset of the events that would leave him incarcerated for life. And the character, he touches upon the character, the Skinner who is involved in it, um, and it gives you this, this, you know, this evening storm we're rolling in from the Pacific, evening storm we're rolling into his life. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, this remarkable book came about. And he speaks of his final phone call with Sasha before Sasha passed away from inside the prison cell and... It's, it's quite a sort of moving last moment for him to recall, though um, I never figured out why the question of how many strings was asked. <laughs> I think it reflects something really interesting about Sasha. I mean, what, what does come over, uh, I think, in the, the quote is the way that Leonard suggests that there are six strings and in fact there are three. And Sasha says, yes, that's right. And there's a kind of a lovely sense for me about 
Leonard then alludes to that Sasha was one of those people who was really kind of supportive of others. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, even though he knows that the answer is incorrect, he's kind of he's an encouraging character. And the narrative is just like a little moment of of the man, which is you know, a beautiful thing for his friend to be recalling. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, as I was preparing to read it, I was trying to imagine what, what were these heavenly harmonics that he's mentioning. Yeah, I don't know. It's really interesting, isn't it? I'll find out one day, I suppose. (laughs) I mean, it is a really, really powerful section. There's a piece where Leonard writes about from the perspective of so many years entombed in cement and steel. And, yeah, you know, it really brings the kind of the reality of the circumstances in which the book was created. You're right. It it folds back into into this this section on on page 556. You know, that's where this narrative is being uh, woven from, this place of entombed cement and steel. I know. I, I, I spent one day in prison and just contemplated what it would be like to be there continually and just the, the having somebody lock the door mm. of your room from the outside is just and to adjust to that and to cope with it and to create a, a masterpiece like this from in there without reference to the internet or anything else is just quite extraordinary just on reflection with that it's interesting that he's talking to Sasha and, and Sasha's explaining how he's gone blind yeah. And, and there is a sense, very much for me, certainly in the in the in the rose, where what Leonard is doing is he's remembering the world, he's remaking the world because he is in this terrifying place. There's these very yeah. very difficult circumstances, and although he is in a sense blind, you know, he hasn't seen a tree, he hasn't seen well many things, a river, a plant, nothing, yeah. And yet he's so he's trying in the book to kind of recapture this world. Well, I think he does it very well. Um, well. It's a world that I'm not that familiar with. It's quite extraordinary. Um, Some of the experiences that he has interwoven with with the world that we live in. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and I've spoken to him, and he's assured me that most of what's in this book is is based on factual experience. And uh, obviously, there has to be some holding back on that because it's a dangerous dangerous field but uh, most of this stuff happened that's that's the incredible part certainly I think Leonard's position on the six when I've corresponded with him is that this is a reality yeah I know it's uh, (laughs) it makes it all the more fascinating a read to uh, recognize that this is there are people like that out there and I, I think Thank goodness that we don't hear of them, um, but they are unknown because that, that's how they're not behind bars. But it's we don't often appreciate the great debt we owe to people who are actually putting their lives, their their whole on the line um, to provide us with the magical compounds that, that we so enjoy and. This is one man who who was in who, who made the ultimate sacrifice and his life in prison. He didn't make it, but he, he took that risk. Um, and that's extraordinary. And I really, 
I think one of the most important things is the world in the world is for these magical compounds to be available and not uh, it's extraordinary suppression of consciousness. It's, it's one of the most counter-evolutionary crimes that is taking place on a daily basis to, to prevent us from evolving as human beings with tools that were provided for that purpose by nature and chemistry. Yeah, and I think the, the the rose stands as a kind of a testament to the to the work of those people, both those the few whose names we unfortunately know, and the the others who are these kind of mythic shadowy figures yeah. uh, who are doing this. I, I agree, great work. Sure, drugs might not be the kind of the the answer to the whole human experience, but these are uh, things that really inform our understanding about ourselves and the world and our relationships and so on, and they are valuable things particularly for us in the these what we might perceive as times of crisis yeah absolutely it's i think it's the only thing that can get us out of the downward spiral that our, our culture was in is uh, more access to these these wonderful tools that change the whole headset that we work with and break down the sort of the idea of sticking to something just because it's the status quo it really gets you right outside of the box <laughs> that's true Greg thanks so much a pleasure and a, an honour to, to, to have read that passage thank you thank you thus concludes the first episode of The Rose Garden we hope you enjoyed listening tune in the following weeks as we dive into the full book one chapter at a time signing off I'm Alexa And I'm Kat. With a few last parting words from William Leonard Picard, we leave you here. Friends and listeners, we hope you have found pleasure and delight in these passages from the Rose, and that you will enjoy the forthcoming full chapter readings of the entirety of this work. My deepest gratitude to the host, to the many contributors, and to those unnamed who made the Rose Garden possible. Please contact us with suggestions and questions on the writing. We'd love to hear from you. In closing, I send thanks and many blessings kind readers and listeners in the worldwide community. And recalling the dedication of the rose, I send affection for the one who wept. Farewell, friends. This is Leonard. And for now, this is Lorenzo, 
signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>